0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Hammer Pub. Uh, I am one of your co hosts, Paul Farrell. I'm here with Jason Jinks Jenkins, and uh, this is the show where we toss a few drinks back, we watch a Hammer movie, and we comment on it, while all the while going completely off the rails uh, in whatever topics we see fit. That sometimes have something to do with the movie, and sometimes they don't. But hey, we have fun. Uh, so, uh, Jinx, how, how's uh, how's your week going? That
1: felt like vaguely like accusatory. Like you know, I, I I know you didn't actually outright say it, but you're so damn polite with that opening that I think audience members, you know, the listeners right now, they probably feel like I'm the one responsible for us going off the rails so often. Is that a is that what I'm getting there? A little bit of. I gotta say, home?
0: I'm really I'm really impressed that you picked up on all that because i was i was trying i was trying to send it out into the world and i was actually worried i was being too subtle so no, that no, that's
1: i got, it.
0: I got I'm, it it's good that you got the message
1: that's you know it's not going to change <laughs> i hope you're braced for that so i,
0: I mean recognizing point, the I've problem isn't
1: going to do away with change. it this...
0: <laughs> i'm good man how are you I'm good. I'm good. Uh I know it's been a really long time since we talked, so uh, a lot has changed. Um
1: like a good 47, you know. maybe 48 hours, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Our, so uh... for, <laughs> for listeners out there, we are uh we're currently banking episodes to sort of get us through the holidays. Uh you know, holiday season's pick up for everybody. I don't know if they will this year, all things considered, but uh but, yeah, I'm currently still stranded in southern Ohio. Uh, so I thought, hey, while we have the opportunity, let's go ahead and bank some episodes. That way we, uh, you know, we don't have to leave listeners in the lurch throughout the month of December with the occasional skipped week or anything of the sort. So, Makes sense to me. Now, as a result, we may not have... Uh, much to talk about with the catch up bits. You know, the first <laughs> 45 minutes of every episode, it's probably going to be maybe more like 10 or 15. You know, I say that and it's going to go an hour tonight. You watch. But, uh, I, I was going to say, you just, you just, uh, go ahead, say it. a say challenge it. out there
0: that I did. No, think you, you, might... you were going to say something else. I just walked. I just wanted this, Paul. Oh, no, I can't. Because you you're were... just, you're, you're going to be so happy about the pun. It... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, say it. You jinxed just... it. Paul. yeah
1: i got it give me a give me a coke
0: okay Okay. all right all right you know everybody
1: owes me me a coke when that happens everyone in the world yes i haven't gotten a single one yet
0: i will uh i i will get you that coke it's not fair i promise i'll I'll mail it (laughs) um yeah the previously watched segments can be a little dry (laughs) seen in the last two days i actually have something i can talk about the um, movie we watched. <laughs> the movie we're going to talk about. Um, you can go first. I, I can talk about the movie I didn't talk about last time that I mentioned at the very end. Messiah of Evil. Um, I feel like you should go first because we're following up
1: directly on that.
2: Okay. All
1: right. Well, we're... And I'm only saying that because I haven't eaten dinner this week. So <laughs> I am going to mute the mic and uh, munch I... on some rice and pineapple and chicken. So I'm just throwing that out there
0: that's that sounds delicious actually um yeah I'd, I'd be happy to talk about messiah of evil unless the people at home want to hear about sonic the hedgehog because i did watch that um i don't think that that's horror appropriate though uh so i'm gonna go with messiah of evil um i'm going non-horror this
1: week so go ahead tell us a little about sonic
0: after <laughs> <you>. <laughs> about sonic the hedgehog uh it has 90s jim carrey as the villain and that was pretty pretty cool to see Uh, I, you know, as a, as a child of the nineties, um, I miss Jim Carrey and I miss him being completely over the top and insane. And we got that in Sonic the Hedgehog. It's a road trip buddy movie. And I like those too. Um, and it's sort of self-aware kind of knows what it is. I thought I, I I give it a thumbs up. I thought it was a fun movie and my kids loved it. Uh, so, Hey, what are you going to do? We're excited for the sequel.
1: I would too. I, I watched it back in the summer and I, I was going to catch it in theaters and it was right around the time that I think COVID hit so I didn't quite mm. make it um, but I caught it on a VOD when it hit and I
2: I kind of loved it
1: it, was yeah, a, it, it seemed really like a kid friendly movie that didn't alienate adults with any sort of just eye rolling buffoonery you know right. and I say that there's plenty of buffoonery on display but you know it's not it's not worthy, I don't think it's genuinely funny and I, I, I agree with you entirely when you say that it's 90s Jim Carrey. It's not recent Jim Carrey. Like, they plucked him out of 1995 yeah. and yes. brought him yeah. into that movie, and I love it so much. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Like I said, we, we it's been two nights since we recorded last. When we recorded, uh, Joe Biden was just named president-elect. And that evening, when you and I recorded on Saturday Night Live, Carrey appeared as Biden for – I don't know, maybe the last time? It'll be curious to see. But, um, yeah, yeah he, he he broke out an Ace Ventura bit uh, with Loser. So uh, it it was nice. It was nice seeing old Jim Carrey. I, I miss Jim Carrey having fun, you know? And so Sonic and uh, his Biden, his SNL stuff, has definitely kind of scratched that itch, I think.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and it seems like he's embracing it, which is really exciting to see. So... So, yeah, no, I I, thumbs up to Sonic the Hedgehog movie. It was a movie I did not expect to like as much as I did. Um, So, so, yeah, Uh, that is not horror, but I talked about it. So there we go. Um, But yes, uh, Messiah of Evil. So this was a movie that's been on my to watch list for like, I want to say years. Um, I first heard about it from uh, Elric Kane on probably shockwaves or pure cinema or something. It's a movie he talks about a lot and recommends quite a bit. So I've I've always sort of had it in the back burner and the only reason I never watched it was it's it's pretty hard to get a hold of. It's a uh uh Code Red, I believe put it out. Um and you know, anyone that that buys Code Red Blu-rays knows that they are sometimes easily easy to get, sometimes they're really hard to find sometimes they show up on dvd diabolic sometimes they show up on uh uh ronin flicks but it's it's kind of luck of the draw um and that one had been out of print for a while and i was ordering something oh the herschel gordon uh lewis feast box set was on sale at a um, diabolic dvd Paul, i put can in I my ask you about that uh you sure can <laughs> <laughs>
1: Try not to interrupt, but I feel like no, I would get
0: if I don't I'm ask you about plug. this right now.
1: <laughs> what the hell is the difference between because I didn't get the last uh the last HG Lewis box set. I actually caught a glimpse of it at a local FYE in Florida and the thing was, you know, uh, you look at it and you think, "Hey, maybe Criterion didn't go that overboard with their Godzilla set." That's how big the damn thing was. Yeah, it was huge. It looked like... Yeah, it looked like a, a, a cereal box on steroids. It was crazy. It, it was insane. Uh, but, but... And crazy, really. But we're getting another release of it. Do you know what the difference between the two are? Because I I, I, I hope it's a little more manageable, but at the same time, I, I don't know if I'm going to be as keen to pick it up if it's missing a great deal of stuff that's available in another set somewhere.
0: So the reason I went with... Um... At least the the newer, less expensive version. Uh, well, it has the same movies. Um, it doesn't have... There's a special features disc that isn't in there. And there's a book that isn't in there. Um, having said that, it's the same transfers that were released. Because, you know, Hammer did a bunch of individual releases for those movies. It's those same discs um, and it's in a set that is just very compact, which actually attracts me a lot more. So it, it's just the regular size of a Blu-ray, and it's a little bit bigger. It actually looks—it looks a lot like, um, like you know, when Screen Factory does like trilogy box sets or four movie box sets. They're really. Pretty- yeah, it's that size. It's very small. It fits right so in not line.
1: A, I was imagining it was going to be like one of those American Horror Project box sets.
0: No, it's not thicker like that. It's it's actually kind of. If anything, the disappointment of it is normally Hammer or Hammer Arrow does like yeah those really nice thicker cardboard um, or whatever material it is uh, box sets. Um, this one is actually more like just a little thinner it's kind of like um have you ever held the uh it's alive trilogy that scream put out oh yeah yeah it's like that it's 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 just sort of cardboard paper stuff it's not Uh like crappy but it's it's small and and for me the again i wanted the set i wanted those movies i wanted the transfers i wanted it to be smaller and fit in line so i'm okay with it Plus it was fifty dollars instead of like two hundred dollars. <laughs> and that definitely kinda of sold me. I was like fifty bucks. I think it's worth like thirteen movies um in a with arrows attention to detail. And all of the discs have the same special features they would have had. Now having said that, if you want the bigger, nicer set. Go for it. I mean, it is gorgeous, but yeah, I just I'm not a huge fan of the really large sets. Like I'm the gamera not. set is really big too, and that's one of the reasons I didn't really want to get it. And now they're releasing gamera in smaller, more manageable boxes. Good, um, separating out the eras. So I, I'm probably going to buy those. Um, I'm just glad they're doing like that because have... I I missed yeah. out on the
1: the massive set. Like you, I I hesitated, and then by the time I decided, well, hell, maybe I better go ahead and buy it. It was gone. So,
0: I have a record store. Well, I have a record store near me that has that set in stock, but (sighs) they charge they charge three hundred bucks for it, though. Okay, fuck that. Exactly that. That's the problem. Is there's places by me that have these? I have a place that has like every out of print box set you can imagine. They have, and they charge like double what they initially cost. So I'm like, ugh, I just. I spend too much as it is. I can't do it. But if anybody uh, wants to pick it up and lives in St. Louis, let me know. I'll tell you where to find it. But um, it's, sure. it's expensive. You're going to have to shell out. But yeah, I'm I'm a lot more attracted to the sets that just fit in line with my collection. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I bought that. Um, but anyway, I was adding it to my cart and I was spending $50 anyway. And as collectors always do to punish themselves, you're like, well, maybe I should check around and see if there's anything else I should buy. Since I'm already buying this. And uh, I went to the best-selling section, and there it was. Messiah of Evil was back on Blu-ray, back in print, and it was available. So I was like, well, shit, time to pick it up. So I bought it, and uh, my plan was to watch it as part of my Halloween watching. And, of course, you know, best-laid plans never quite work out Halloween time. So it got pushed back to early November, and I finally watched it the other night. And let me tell you, it was worth the wait. It's... um it's phenomenal. Um, it's kind of an interesting group of people who worked on it because it was it was sort of made by the people who wrote like um, Howard the Duck and American Graffiti and Temple of Doom. Like it's it's really bizarre. Like it's it's people who are making bigger films um, and then they sort of went to make this this horror film. Um, and it's it feels very heavily influenced by a lot of early like some Romero stuff, like Night of the Living Dead is definitely an influence on it. But it also feels kind of Bob Clarkish. Like I definitely get vibes of Children shouldn't play with dead things and dead um, Death, Dream. Death Dream. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, right. Yeah, multiple titles. Um, but it, it it it's all there. Um, and Carnival of Souls, in there? Carnival of Souls for sure. Is definitely has to be an influence on that movie. Um, and, and like it's Val Luton ish a little bit in some ways, like it, it's very suggestive. Like, I'd be hard pressed to tell you what the plot of the movie is, even though I just watched it, and that almost doesn't matter. So, it's kind of sort of European in that way where it doesn't, it, it's more about the mood and the tone. Um, but it's this woman. Oh, and the other movie, this is a weird poll, but there's a 90s uh movie called Dark Waters. Um that kind of feels Lovecraftian in some ways yeah, the, about a woman
1: Mariano Baino Baino? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's like
0: a woman goes to this like convent that her father's been paying money to after he dies to try to figure out why he's been why he had set up this fund for them and get to the bottom of some weird family secret. Which is very much in line with uh uh Messiah of Evil because it's about a woman who's sort of like trying to find her a strange father who's an artist in this town and strange things are happening in the town. You know, at night the town's people all get together and go somewhere, go to the beach and light fires and have weird rituals. And they all act very strangely. Um, And there's some really great standout sequences in the film. Um, There's like a movie theater sequence where she goes to watch a movie and, and it's, first she's sitting there alone and then it shows the film then it cuts back to her and there's people behind her it, it's very hitchcockian and how it's set up like <clears throat> it feels very purposeful and very pointed with how it's building dread intention and, and the audience's information that the characters don't have like visually in the scene um and yeah it's just it's very very impressive i really really enjoyed it um so if if you're a horror fan that uh, wants to see something that... And I wouldn't even call it a slow burn. It's just more psychological and, and mood-oriented. Um, I think you should definitely check this movie out.
1: No, I agree entirely. And my God, that uh, that theater sequence is like an all-timer, I think. Yeah. You're right. It's, it feels very Hitchcockian, maybe early on in that sequence. But by the end of it, there is something really kind of dangerous about it. Like it just, the uh, which uh, we don't have to get into spoilers, but the final moments of it are so like, sort of just nerve scraping, you know, and kind of horrifying. And I love it. Uh, I love the yeah. feel of the whole movie. I think you're right. It's not, it's not a slow burn movie. It's not a slow burn movie in the same way that Carnival Souls isn't a slow burn movie. It's just, right. it's not interested in shocking you constantly or making certain there's a scare on screen every five to 10 minutes. You know, it's not, it's not a -a shockathon, you know, but, uh, right. But God, I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great film. Uh, I've never double featured it with carnival of souls, but I think that would probably be, that would probably be pretty great. I agree.
0: I might, I might have
1: to do that next Halloween. Oh, God, you know, Carnival of Souls is such a perfect Halloween movie, and I didn't get around to it. I got around to so few Halloween movies this year. Uh kind of mm-hmm. bums me out. I was actually going to finally watch Hocus Pocus, which everyone has been pestering <laughs> me to do for years. And I told, so myself, <laughs> I told myself in September, hey, we're finally going to do it this year. We're going to wait until right before Halloween, and we're just going to knock it out. Never happened.
0: So... I, I am all in for the watch party when you whenever you do it. Um, just let me know and I will I, watch it with you. I will watch Hocus Pocus if you watch Zombies Halloween 2 again. I, I told you I'll do that. I've seen but the difference is I've seen Zombies Halloween 2.
1: Yeah, but I have you. Seen it. But have you I, all?
0: I think I have twice. I watched it twice. I really? sat through the whole thing twice, damn it. Uh oh. Well no, I mean like when I because I watched it when it first came out. And then I watched it when the box, remember the big Screen Factory box set thing? When that came out, I watched it because I, I marathoned the whole franchise. Now, I've never it's been watched it.
1: Seven years.
0: Y- you sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's burned into my memory. Uh, uh, but uh, I have seen it. Um, but you're right. I, I will revisit it and I will take into consideration the uh, sort of re- detaching it from the franchise in that way. Because I think that is that is true. I've never watched it not thinking of it as, like, this needs to be a certain way, you know? Like, I, I think that's my biggest issue with the Halloween movies for me is they're so... I, I just have this weird thing where I want them to be a certain way. I want Loomis to be a certain way. And the way zombies sort of interpreted those characters is not the way that I see them. So it's not... I always just felt like, oh, this isn't for me. Um, but I will... I know a lot of horror fans love... Uh, Halloween Two. I know a lot of people really like it, so I will. I will definitely give another shot. Maybe that could be our double feature. It could be Hocus Focus and Focus, focus And <laughs> I can't imagine a more a uh, uh, shocking jump from one movie to another. I think it makes total sense, Paul. It, I, I would do it. That'd be a fun night. <laughs> the question so... is, what do you close with? But <clears throat> oh god, I have Sorry. no idea. I'm going off the rails already.
1: I, I don't think that Hocus Pocus would stand a chance of being as charming as it probably is meant to be if it's immediately following up Rob Zombie's Halloween 2.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like, that's probably <laughs> It's such a not... dour way to end the night.
1: <laughs> it is. It is for a fact. You yeah, would almost right, have to do a right. triple feature. You would have to maybe do— You would have to do Hocus Pocus. Hear me out. Like, maybe Hocus Pocus, then maybe Zombie's Halloween 2, which is going to take us to a pretty dark place. All right. But then recover with trick or treat. Ooh, I like that. So little, little darkness still, but a little more fun. Yeah, it's just it's I was
0: thinking, like fun. But I like the idea of doing something that's like kind of dark and fun. That's yeah. a good idea. Triple feature. Yeah. Or or Burton's Sleepy Hollow is always a good Halloween. Oh, treat. That's and correct. it's dark. It's dark, but it's also just so freaking. I, it just makes me so happy that movie. Like, well, it's, it's a hammer film. Yes, it's the most absolutely. hammery yeah. hammer
1: film that ever hammered that just happens to not actually be hammer.
0: It's a hammer movie through and through. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. But, um... <laughs> so the
1: other night, you and I finished up uh, uh, recording. I was going to watch Possessor Uncut, the new Brandon Cronenberg movie on Amazon. Ooh. And guess what? Amazon <laughs> doesn't have <laughs> Possessor Uncut. Yeah, Possessor Cut, I yeah. guess. Um, so I wound up, I was just kind of browsing around aimlessly. I didn't want to watch it through uh, like the Apple app. I was kind of annoyed. You know, Amazon Prime is kind of my, you know, either that or Netflix. Those are, those are my two go-tos. So uh, I don't know. I just started browsing around a little bit on Amazon Prime, and I found this new television series called, and this is not horror, folks, but hear me out, mm-hmm. Wayne. Have you heard of this? I have not. So I, I guess it was much like Cobra Kai. It was like a YouTube show at some point that got canceled. And uh, I guess Amazon Prime sees it maybe as their Cobra Kai because they've scooped it up. And I assume uh, they're hoping that it's successful so they can order more seasons, much like Cobra Kai is now like a friggin' phenomenon on Netflix. Yeah. Um, it's about <laughs> a couple of crazy kids named Wayne and Dell. And uh Wayne is the sixteen-year-old uh Massachusetts kid who is kind of impervious to pain. He's always getting his ass kicked by trying to stick up for bullied kids and people who are wronged, and he kind of takes it upon himself to uh you know to meet out justice. He's kinda like a little superhero, except he doesn't mm-hmm. wear a costume and he doesn't really speak a well of a lot. He's almost like uh, a, a little Terminator with, like, uh, you know, mid-'90s-era Matt Damon's accent. Um, and he winds up falling in love with a girl who tries to sell him stolen, uh, uh, stolen Girl Scout cookies. Hmm. And uh, through a series of circumstances, his father passes away, but not before telling him that his birthright is this old Trans Am, which is currently sitting in Florida, awaiting him. So with everything in his life kind of gone, he rescues this girl that he likes from her abusive father and brothers, and they go on a road trip to Florida and have lots of crazy adventures on the way. Paul, I fucking love this series. It is, uh, I binged it. It's 10 episodes. I watched it in like a day and a half. It is, uh, it's violent as hell. It's funny as can be. And it's got the biggest damn heart of anything I've seen in a while. It uh it's actually from the guys who wrote Zombieland and Deadpool, if that's oh, okay. anything. So if, if if that gives you an idea of the kind of tone that they go for. Uh but it's so good. The performances, I don't know who any of these people are uh in the show, but they're all giving just A plus performances. Like I said, it's entertaining as can be. And uh by the end of it, the final couple of episodes, like it's It just—it really gets to you. It's just unbelievably sweet, even for all of the blood and violence and wicked dark humor on display. Uh, Doesn't mean that any of it is uh, easily won. Uh, You know, by the end of the show, it's—it hurts. But uh, but again, it's totally worth the journey. So if you get the chance, definitely check it out.
0: Okay. No, that sounds really interesting. Um, That's cool. That's, um, that's pretty much it. That's all I got for the last two days. <laughs> the only other movie I want to call out, and this is weird, but I'm going to do it. Because <laughs> it's not horror by any means, but I think it has darkness in it. And it's like a really obscure movie that I want to like, I always feel like I need to call attention to anytime I watch it. And it's just got a new Blu-ray. Have you ever heard of the movie Clifford from 1994?
1: <laughs> yes. Have I seen it?
0: No. Okay, it's starring Martin Short and ah, Charles Grodin.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he plays, Mary, uh, Mary
0: Steenburgen. A child, right? He, Martin Short plays a seven-year-old boy who talks to his little dinosaur. And this movie, when it first off, it's one of those movies that when you watch it, you're like, how the fuck did this get made? <laughs> like, it, it makes... The fact that someone clearly paid millions of dollars for this movie to exist. Cause it's not like a low, budget; it was a studio movie. Like it looks good. It's, it's a real movie with like bigger actors in it, you know, at the time. Um, and it is mind boggling that this movie exists and it's like rated like PG or whatever. It's not like an R rating or anything, but the humor is so weirdly dark. Um, and this was a movie That my my brother and I would do this thing where we would find just like weird comedies uh, growing up and we would just rent them relentlessly. And this was a movie that was always in stock at the video store and we'd rent it constantly and we watched it on repeat. We never owned it. Um, And we became obsessed with this movie. Um, And every time we'd talk to people about it, they'd be like, what is that? Like, oh, no, I heard that was horrible. And it got a Blu-ray from freaking Scorpion recently like like scorpion releasing did clifford as a new restoration i don't understand and it showed up And I, the only reason I found out about it was I subscribed to Roninflix's like updates on my email. So whenever they announce a new movie, it like emails me. And I get this email one day where it's like Clifford coming to Blu-ray. I was like, are you shitting me? I was like, I can't wait to buy this. I texted my brother immediately. And he's like, he was like, oh my God. Like we immediately pre-ordered it. We're like, it's like they released it just for us. Uh, I was going to say, Paul, I subscribed to that same newsletter and I got no such notice. So it's possible they did maybe, just make um, it for you. Yeah, I don't know. But either way, so I rewatched it. And let me tell you, not only does it hold up, I think it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> now, granted, again, I have nostalgia for it. But it. what's great about it is Clifford is a little boy who everybody despises. And he just... he's he's a calculating little bastard who (laughs) manipulates everybody to get what he wants and if he doesn't get what he wants he will vindictively ruin your life and it's creepy as hell when he like turns on someone and basically he gets dumped off with Charles Grodin's character who's like his uncle that's never met him and so he stays the week with his uncle and he proceeds to just completely unravel his uncle's life in like crazy ways. And it basically drives Charles Grodin completely insane um, to the point where he like, he, like kidnaps him. And like, it's just it goes so dark. And and, and again, it's this movie where you just it's baffling how they got away with making this because you're just watching this movie going, who is this for? Like, like, is this for kids? Is this for adults? I don't know, like, because it's just so bizarre. But in its bizarreness, it's just hilarious. Um, and and I, the best compliment I can give it is uh, there's a video review you can look up on YouTube by Roger Ebert. And Roger Ebert gave this movie like half a star. He hated it. And look, all respect to Roger Ebert, but Roger Ebert watched and reviewed a lot of movies that weren't for Roger Ebert, and he didn't understand that. And literally, his review is like, I don't understand what this movie is. What is this movie? And he keeps showing clips from the movie, and he's showing, like, the funniest clips, and he's just like, that's not funny. I don't get this. And I'm like, this is... It's just... It shows you the disparity between an odd movie that's kind of, I think, ahead of its time because it feels more like an Anchorman kind of movie, more like weird, disparate, random humor that's more about the odd character beats than it is about the plot of the film. So I feel like if you had plucked Clifford out of 1994 and put it in like the mid to late 2000s, I think it would have performed much better. Um, and it would have had an audience. But I think it's just as it was, way ahead of its time. So watch that review and then watch the movie. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's it's glorious. There's a scene where Char- Charles Grodin is just looking at him and going, can you just look at me like a, like a person for, like a human boy, be a human child for, you can't even do it. You can't even do it. And it keeps cutting back to Martin Short, just making faces, trying really hard to look normal. And my God jinx, I swear to you, I almost like peed myself. It's that funny. Like it is so fucking funny. And so much of the movie is just him having weird expressions. It's not even dialogue, it's his performance it's like an Oscar worthy performance where he's playing a seven year old boy. Please Um, tell me that
1: there is some sort of twist at the end, like some orphan level twist where it turns out that he is actually a 40 year old man.
0: Oh no, because the movie begins in the future with him as an old man telling a story (laughs) to a child about when he was a child. It's the weirdest fucking movie in the world. They even do like a, like a future thing where it's like in the future and like, and, and, and he's telling the story to, um, uh, uh, the the boy the, the main character in Boy Meets World when he was still a child like is that is in the movie and he's like it's it's just it it's such a bizarre thing but the reason I bring it up on a horror show is it does go to like creepy places and it. Like by the end, Charles Grodin believes that that Clifford is is evil incarnate, like that he believes it's like an evil thing <laughs> that isn't actually human that is just sent here to destroy people. And it it's great. So uh, if I can, I can, can get, get one name person, name. one person out there who's never seen Clifford to become a Clifford fan, then this conversation was worth it.
1: And it's currently on Roninflix.
0: Yeah, you can buy it. Um and I think I think it's like a twenty dollar Blu-ray, which isn't bad for them. Like it's not you know, a lot of those movies are like thirty bucks. So I, I bought it. Looks I'm sorry, really good. Did you,
1: did you say 30 bucks after you and I both just spent 65? I don't want to talk about honor.
0: that because that's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> this is, that was all your fault. I even like had a whole thing. I had a soliloquy about how I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to spend the money. And then you did it. And you're like, well, now you got to do it. And then I fucking did it. I did I it. I bought the set I actually and set I love it. I'm so, I'm so happy. I bought it. <laughs> we watched we watched haunt on halloween night with uh watch on halloween night i showed it to my brother who had never seen it and he loved it now he's going to go buy that set yeah. <laughs> so we sold the set together um but like yeah it's a, and i actually liked it even more the second time because the first time i saw it i was like i really like this the second time i was like i really like this like it, really? it's growing on me yeah cuz so. i,
1: I it, it was one of those movies like i i hate to say it but haunt had there was something about its marketing and maybe the timing of its release that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like I, and I liked Hellfest, but then when I saw kind of the setup of haunt and I saw the trailer, I was just like, you know, I don't really know if I'm that interested in watching this, you know? Um, and then shutter picked it up and I still didn't watch the damn thing. And (laughs) so many people online had talked favorably about it. And eventually, uh, Damien Maffei, uh, was a guest on this podcast, you know, the other iteration of this show. Um, and in advance of that, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to watch this movie. And so I did it, and I was like, son of a bitch, this is impressive as hell. This is, like, it, it's such a great... We've seen that setup before, but the execution right. is what makes it really special. Uh, yeah, I love Haunt. Uh, the only thing that bums me out about Haunt, and I love it, like, I, I... I... <laughs> I love where the story goes by the end, but as soon as the credits hit, I was kind of like, well, this isn't a franchise, is what this is not. So, you know, it, it's the kind of movie that I want a sequel to, but we're... Uh...
0: I think you could. I think you could do a sequel. But I think you'd have, to, you'd have to expand the mythology in a way that, like, isn't in the first movie. You know, you'd have to basically, like, retcon a few things. But you, you, could, you could make them part of a collective. You know uh, you, you could you could do that I and guess it, I, I really wanted go- to continue the se- series I don't know that it needs a sequel but of course anytime you see a really good slasher you're like where's the sequel you know <laughs> like that, that is it just feels commonplace and and expected um kind of like Hellfest Hellfest really needs a sequel yeah um, yeah that was that I don't know that kind of- I don't think it'll get it unfortunately it it seemed to I don't know Hellfest is another movie where it's like I don't know why more people don't like it. A lot of people don't like it. Um, really? When I was, yeah, like, I mean, I don't talk- like it or haven't seen it. No, I mean, I I remember talking online. Like I posted this whenever I watched it because I, I had heard from the grapevine that it was like fine, like middling and sort of disappointing. But you know, being the slasher fan I am, when it came out on Blu-ray, I bought it anyway and watched it. And I was like, "This is really fun!" Like, I was like, "This." I don't know what people are expecting, but it's it was really fun. I had a good time with it. Um, I think I like Haunt more. I think Haunt works better. I don't know. Like, as a as its own contained story, but uh, Hellfest has a lot of really big ideas, um, and some really solid kills and things like that. And it's perfect for a franchise. Like, Hellfest could spawn a very easy franchise that could probably get better as it goes. Um, but, you know, I don't... Unfortunately, I think the box office performance wasn't superb.
1: Too bad. I remember uh, I caught it in theaters on Halloween night. I think I'd gotten out of work, and I was like, well, why not? You know, I'm going to catch something at the theater, and that was the only horror movie that was playing. so... That's what I watched Halloween night and it was oh, That's perfect. Perfect.
0: So. Yeah, we watched Haunt on Halloween night and I thought that made it even, I think that's why I liked it more this time is it, it just being in the season itself and watching a movie that was sort of steeped in it. Um, I kind of got it more. I was into it more. Um, yeah. And I think it's just going to grow on me over time. So I'm glad I bought the freaking $60 movie. <laughs> <I gotta tell laughs> Son of a bitch. The-
1: <laughs> Can't,
0: i cannot believe i bought that i was like so determined not to buy it <laughs>
1: you and I, I i think i correct me if i'm wrong i texted you first with this sort of uh can you believe this shit like yeah. can you believe that they're charging that much <laughs> For that movie.
0: And we both bought. Can you believe <laughs> the nerds? That's, that's why they do it. This that's movie do it. is still available on Free. Sh- I could watch it for fucking free. For and free. I paid $60. But I will say, I love the packaging. Great, like the slipcover being the mask and then his face underneath. Um, the transfer was gorgeous. I, I do still believe that. When I watch a Blu-ray, like I can see a difference in the quality. Oh, absolutely. Like, a Blu-ray does look better, so at least there's that. And then, you know, the posters and the map of the place. I mean, that stuff's cool. You know, I, I it it comes with a bunch of stuff. I don't know what I'm going to do with it all yet, but I'm I, happy I, to have it. <laughs> to
1: me, it kind of, like, tickles my collector gene where I'm kind of like... You know, the, the whole reason I bought it in the first place was, one, I think it was post-podcast. Uh, you, you and I... Had uh, had a few drinks, and then afterwards, I was just rummaging about, and I was like, "Ah, God, there is no way that I'm paying sixty dollars for that box set. You know, I would rather pay twenty dollars for the regular Blu-ray and have it on my shelf. Look at it—that plain, uninteresting (laughs) twenty-dollar edition. I could,
0: I could
1: the not special one with all the other bells and whistles. I could." This is the
0: sickness that we have. I, I can, I can <laughs> this own is that, the addiction. I guess. It's not, it's not alcohol. It's not drugs. It's buying Blu-rays. That is that is an addiction that has to be dealt with. You you <laughs> cut to five minutes
1: later. I had already purchased that thing
0: and like two Paul Nashy
1: Blu-rays for way more than I probably should have paid for Oh, you for bought this. the Paul Nashi
0: set. Did you buy? Oh, the Paul Nashi Blu-rays, not the... Yes. Cool, like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah uh, I got Fury of the and...
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, damn it. Assignment, um... Ah, fuck it, Assignment
0: and Terror? Yes, yes,
1: yeah. thank you. Um, which, I haven't even cracked those open yet, but I really want to. Part of me, like, I... I love that they're putting them out, but it bums me out that they're putting out these special editions, like, in... Not, like, if I'm gonna watch the Waldemar Deninsky movies, I want to watch them in order. But they're not available in any sort of order right now. You know, so... I don't know. Uh, well, it's kind of like off.
0: Hammer. It's like how these, like the Frankenstein movies all kind of came out randomly, you know, like when they, and, and Dracula, like it's, it's weird that they don't just put these in order or put them in a box set. Although now it's, now it's clear why Scream isn't doing like a Frankenstein box set because it looks to be that uh Warner archive is going to get in this game. Putting out a two-disc
1: special edition oh, yeah. with a new 2K restoration, so, which, recall,
0: have, have you seen the videos of the restoration? No, I haven't. I haven't oh, yet. Oh, my God. I can't, I can't wait. We're going to have to do, uh, well, we already did an episode on that movie. But... <laughs> I'm we, can, excited we can do to, like a mini review, you know yeah. like before well, we uh, could do, we could do it at the beginning like this. we could yeah. talk about when it couple of, we can do a little coverage of it, um, but I'm it was, very excited for that to explain to listeners right now, uh, it was just announced as
1: we 're recording this that uh, Warner Archive is going a two disc special edition of The Curse of Frankenstein, which is a movie that I never thought would even see blu ray i don 't even know why that would be the case. But it was just never getting a release, and now they're putting it out with like the original poster art. They're putting it out with all these bells and whistles, and uh, yeah, I just yeah, I can't wait. So. It's good news. It's good news. So yeah. so yeah, we've 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 already made it forty minutes in. I can't believe it. <laughs> I, it's
0: been two days. <laughs> it, we're we're oh, yappers. We're just going to have us. to make our peace with this. It. Is us. All right. Well, we should probably uh, comment on a movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, folks. So tonight, as you can probably tell from the title that you clicked on to get to this episode in the first place, Paul and I are tackling The Phantom of the Opera, the 1962? 1962 adaptation of the original Gaston Leroux novel, uh, which had been adapted up until this point previously by the... There was a the Lon Chaney version in 1925. There was the... Uh, the. Uh, Oh, the Claude Rains uh, Universal production in, uh, was it 41, 41 or 42, something like that? Sounds uh right. Which is just gorgeous. And then the very next one was this one, Hammer, actually tackling the property. Uh, I believe Paul and I are watching it the same way tonight, believe it or not. Uh, we're both watching, yes, Paul, the Scream Factory edition?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I bought it. <laughs> I <caved. Which> it Yeah.
1: <laughs> has that gorgeous cover art uh, that I'm now staring at on the uh, the menu screen. So, folks, uh, however you're watching, let's go ahead and cue it all up to the very first frame. Undoubtedly, it's going to say Universal International. I'm assuming. All right. Oh, oh, shit! Out of nowhere. It didn't even fade in. Just boom. Okay, so we're on the first frame of that. So, let's begin here in five, four, three, two. One and play and universal international there it is. here we go. a hammer film production.
0: Paul, I'm really excited about this one. I love this movie it's my uh where does it rank in your fan of the opera iterations? um you know it's funny that you're asking me that
1: earlier this year uh a decade ago. I watched all of the Phantom movies sort of back to back. I revisited the, uh, the Lon Chaney movie, the Claude Rains movie, this movie. Uh, I watched the Robert England movie. Uh, oh, yeah. I watched, yeah, which is, I, I think, actually surprisingly a lot of fun. It's a I fun watched, movie, yeah. It is. The Joel Schumacher um, Phantom <laughs> of the Opera musical, which I did not care for when it first came out. And I watching it again, I found that I had a soft spot for it. Uh, there was a TV movie version with Charles Dance. There was a cartoon produced in the mid '80s, which is, believe it or not, it's one hour long and the most faithful adaptation of the novel I've seen. Oh, wow. um, believe it or not, and I was doing all of this as kind of like, oh, an appreciation of you know this character that I've loved since I was a kid for a few reasons that we can get into later, but also I, it, it kind of bummed me out that. Here is a character, you know, we, we, we've had a lot of revisits recently. That is a great opening moment with his eye. Um, Yeah. And,
0: uh, not to interrupt you, but I have a little bit of a funny thing about that is I watched this and I'll talk about it throughout tonight, but I, I watched this with my two daughters (laughs) Um, one is six and one is
1: nine. I love that you're getting your daughters in the hammer films. Previously they had seen two two faces of Dr. Jekyll, right? They've
0: seen two faces of Dr. Jekyll. They've seen some of Kiss of the Vampire, uh, they've seen a couple of them. And the crazy thing is, they now like look forward to it. Like what happened was yes. um I, I worked yesterday and I got home and I hadn't really seen my, my kids all day, and it was sort of like on the cusp of bedtime. And they're like, what are you going to do? I was like, oh, I'm going to watch a Hammer movie. And and my nine-year-old was like, a Hammer movie? I, I like Hammer movies. That That's the Dr. Jekyll one, right? Like, can I watch it? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> probably. It's a school <laughs> night, but sure. Why not? I haven't seen you all day. And then my six-year-old was like, well, I want to watch it. Um, So I said, sure, why not? I love anyway, that. so they watched it with me. And the funny thing was when it cuts to the eye and it, like, jump cuts – my my nine year old like jumped out of the like out of the couch and was like <gasps> like, like <laughs> gasped and thought the eye thing was terrifying, and it like kind of recontextualized that moment for me in some ways because you know like I watch these movies and I don't find them scary but I'm also a little desensitized you know like I watch a lot of horror movies you know but like to see a kid see that and her she found it very scary and it made her very like interested in the phantom character. She was like, well, who is that guy? Why does he only have one eye? What You know, he looks so angry. Like, And she automatically was like engaged in the movies. I thought that was really cool.
1: I love that. I love that story. I love that they're getting into those movies. Uh, yeah. At the perfect age. I think these movies, even more so than I think some spooky, kid-friendly movies of today might be. I mean, I think these are more of a great stepping stone into horror fandom probably than I really
0: agree. Yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly.
1: (laughs) So I, I love that. I really, really dig that. Um, yeah, no, I, I just for the hell of it, you know, just as a, uh, as, as an appreciation of the character, I wanted to revisit all of them. It had been ages, you know, a lot of new, Oh God, I watched the, uh, I watched the Terry Argento version that had just gotten a brand new Blu-ray release.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of us being collectors and buying everything just because, I also bought that, and I haven't even opened it yet. It's sitting on my shelf, but I did buy it.
1: Uh, rat Orgy. That's all you, all you got to say about that one. I have never seen it,
0: but it's Argento, and I was like, ah. No, it's not. I, I, I bought it. that. I bought Card Player. I bought Sleepless. I bought all of his... Car player is interesting. Sleepless
1: is well-made. Phantom of the Opera is none of those things. Uh, Phantom mm-hmm. of the Opera is more like Dracula 3D. And I okay. hate to say it, but to me, the last... And I think a lot of people would argue with me on this even, but I, I think the last truly great Argento film was The Stendhal Syndrome in the mid-'90s. And there were people who didn't like that film and still don't, but I think that's the last time that I could see sort of the guiding hand of a master, you know? And then every movie he's done subsequently has been kind of, you know, hit and miss. Like nothing is ever fully connected. There there are beats and there are moments uh, where you can tell that the guy who is making one of these movies, like a Do You Like Hitchcock or the card player or something like that, it's like there are moments where it's like, oh, oh, that's kind of like that thing that I used to love. Oh, you know, Uh, the Phantom of the Opera is just
0: kind of – and it's I good. I haven't seen Stenhall. I've never seen it, so I got to check that out.
1: It's good. It's deeply disturbing and probably problematic as hell. But
0: uh, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, I, I actually have a Blu-ray of it because that's you know I'm a collector. I own it. I just you know it's like, you know how you collect things and you have them and then you're like oh, I just haven't gotten into it yet. But- I actually own several Argento films I've not seen, and I like to say I think I've talked to you about this before. I like to save movies from big directors. So I have something to look forward to, you know, like I always keep one or two in my pocket. Um, But yeah, Sten Hall has been one on my list for quite a while. That's fair.
1: I, uh, so yeah, yeah, that's how, that's how I began my year was by going through all of them, even down to like the TV version with, uh, I think I mentioned this Charles dance and yeah, you know uh, there, there are a couple still that I've missed that are very hard to get a hold of that I haven't gotten around to yet, but uh, it was all, to revisit one, but also I, uh, you know, I've been trying my hand at writing, uh, teleplays, like, you know, writing pilots to see, uh, you know, if I can just kind of crack the, uh, the form and, you know, the, the way I, I didn't want to be too precious about something that I created myself because I do have a couple of ideas set aside. So I thought the best way to sort of cut my teeth was to write a couple of things that, I would have no hope of ever getting produced anyway. That way, there, there's there's a safety net there. You know, I won't be too precious yeah. about that. So, I wrote a Hellraiser pilot. I was like, okay, what would I want to see out of this? And I wrote it, and I actually wound up really liking what I wrote. So I was like, okay, all right, I think I, I think I got a handle on the five acts. I think I know, you know, uh, how to do. It. And the next thing I was going to do, I was like, well, maybe I should write something that. I could possibly put out into the world in some way. Uh, but still I like that safety net of basing it on something that was pre-existing. So I started to write a Phantom of the Opera pilot. Hmm. Got, I wrote the opening act, which I loved. I was, or the teaser rather, I was into the opening act and, um, It was announced there is a Phantom of the Opera television series coming up within (laughs) a year or a year and a half, something like that. And as soon as I read that, like, it didn't even matter. It was all for the sake of practice, but I was just like, "Sure." well, fuck. So I just kind of closed that file and closed that notebook and set them aside and haven't gone back to them. But to taking the long way around to answer your question, how does this movie rank with all the others? What's weird is, is I can tell you what my first couple of favorites are, but beyond that, I can't really tell you which ones are better and which ones are worse. I can't really put them into any significant order simply because they're, even for having the same source material, they are so vastly different yeah. from one another. And I kind of love that. I, I love that the same story and the same character can uh, can inspire vastly different interpretations, Argento's would be at the bottom. I could say that for certain. Um, But uh, as far as this one goes, is this one my favorite? No. Is it one of my favorite hammers? Also, no. But I still think it's a fantastic film. I think it's gorgeously made. Uh, I love the performances. I love the take on the story, which is more... um, I mean this is less Laroe and more universal Claude Rains adaptation, you know? Like yeah, uh
0: Right. It feels the more rela- in line with that.
1: Yeah, yeah, like the it's interest in the 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 sort of grandeur and obviously the relationship between he and Christine sort of mirrors that as opposed to uh you know the other adaptations and the source material. So uh, but I think it's just so much fun. I, I, I love Michael Goff in this. I think he's so oily and snake-like and just kind of brilliant. Yeah,
0: he's a great uh, villain. He's
1: fantastic. <clears throat> Up until this point, you know, Hammer-wise, we'd seen him in what? Horror of Dracula, and that was it. And he was kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of a sniveling kind of, you know, annoying, cowardly kind of character in that. Um... But this is the first time, this may be the only time I've ever seen him in a role where I found him to be just outright despicable.
0: Well, it's interesting that there isn't, because this this was sort of the the A picture at the time, because we just talked about Captain Clegg and how that was sort of the B picture to this movie. And it's interesting that that movie had like Cushing in it, and this one doesn't have Cushing or Lee, even though I know Lee was like very seriously considered to be in it as the phantom i guess from what i was reading but there's a lot of it seems like there's a lot of confusion over who is supposed to be what because i know like universal really wanted to remake the phantom again and because of like dracula's success they pretty much like reached out to hammer and said you should do this and i guess that also coincided with the fact that did you read about the Cary grant stuff no i didn't Okay, I at first I read it. and I thought it was like bullshit. So I was like, no way. And then I found like multiple sources. And even on this Blu-ray, they talk about it um, on the special features. But I guess like, so, you know, Cary Grant uh, tried to retire. And then like Hitchcock got him back out of retirement. And then he started doing like, more like genre pictures and stuff. And he wasn't like super into it, but he was making money. Well, I guess one day Cary Grant walked into the general offices of Hammer in London, just like just waltzed right in and was like, I'm Cary Grant <laughs> and I'd like to make a movie with you guys. And that is fantastic. They were kind of like, OK. And so they got um Tony Hines and Hines was like they would tell you, it's like, hey, Cary Grant wants to make a movie with us. And and Hines was like, he's never going to do it. He's going to he's gonna back out at the last moment. This is how these actors are. He's like, there's no way Cary Grant's going to make a movie with us. Like, oh no, he's very serious about it. He wants to do it. And Universal's willing to, you know, back a project. So he's like, well, they want us to remake Phantom. Does he want to do that? So they pitched it to Cary Grant. Cary Grant's like, absolutely. I want to be in Phantom. Now, there's some disparity between whether or not Cary Grant was supposed to play the Phantom or the Love Interest, but it, but Hines makes it sound like the he wrote, he's like, okay, so he wrote the movie for Cary Grant. This movie was literally, the screenplay was written for Grant. And they got a shooting date, they got the budget, Universal backed it, and Grant backed out like right before they started shooting. Damn it, Cary Grant. And, but because they had already everything was a go, they just filled it in. And the reason, because everyone's like, "Oh, well, it would make so much more sense for Cary Grant to be the Edward D'Souza role, the Harry Hunter role." Um, but uh, what Hine said was like, "Well, we we at the last minute we lost our Phantom, so we had to cast one really quick, and they got Herbert Lom." And so I'm like, "So Cary Grant was going to be the Phantom? That is bizarre." <laughs> like that i mean he's older. to me it than, does make more uh, sense because he would have been 50 he, right but but that didn't Why? stop american think... actors from dating young women <laughs> in well, movies it, it, right true 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 so i mean that that's my thing is is it, it, you would think he would but apparently he wanted to have more of like a sense of like gravitas to the role he was going to play um and yeah so Cary grant was was supposed to be that role um and then, right after that they were going they they tried to get Christopher Lee, but he was committed to a different film, and he was going to be shooting during when they had to shoot based on the money and the date so it went to to herbert Lohm but yeah, I thought that was really fascinating when I was reading about it. no, I love that i uh, I
1: can't even imagine what this movie would look like with uh with Grant in the lead role. I mean, would
0: there have been this sort of insistence that he needed to show his face more often, do you think? Or I don't know. I maybe um I think there probably would have been more like flashbacks. That's what I think. I think there might have been like a heavier component of you know, his past life. Um but the mask was also thrown together at the very last minute. Like it's literally like paper and tape like they did not develop that mask at all and it makes um, it
1: one of the most impactful phantom masks i think ever because it seems like something that he would have made himself you know
0: yes no i actually love the mask you know it's funny about the mask um and i'm i, I just keep being reminded of things my daughter said when i was watching this <laughs> so i know it's not really like topical for listeners but um i think it's fun um my nine-year-old I, I have a shirt uh, that has it's like a it's a fright rag shirt I think, and it's like a Babysitters Club shirt, but it's but it's Halloween, so it's like it's like Laurie Strode on the it's like a cover from a Babysitters Club book, but it's got like Jer- Laurie Strode with the two kids she's babysitting. It says the Boogeyman Club, and Myers is in the back. Love so it's it. like a it's like a Halloween spin on the Babysitter's Club. At any rate, because of that shirt, they know who Michael Myers is. <laughs> and a poster on my wall. Like, they're familiar with Michael Myers. They've never seen those movies, because I think that's a bit too much for, a, for a, my daughters, at least. I know there's kids that can watch that stuff, but they would, it would turn them off to horror if I showed it to them. I got to be careful. Um, but anyway, when she saw The Phantom, she goes, oh, it's like that Michael Myers guy. That's what... That was the first thing she said. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it, yeah, it kind of looks like that. So she immediately made like a Myers connection when she saw the mask. So I was very proud.
1: Paul, I'm just throwing this out there. For one brief segment, uh, we, we, <laughs> we should invite your daughters onto this podcast to chat <laughs> about win. one of the they, – they cannot <laughs> drink. But no. well no <laughs> if, they, uh, if they want to chat about you know the movies for like ten or fifteen minutes, uh, we, we should totally bring them on and i will I will not swear, uh, <laughs> but just to get their opinion like there because I love the idea of like a burgeoning hammer fan. I remember being like younger and seeing you know i 've talked about this Brides of Dracula for the first time, and just those movies hitting me in such a way that other horror movies at the time didn 't and you know my appreciation for them was decidedly different so it would be neat to hear from somebody who is only now discovering these movies and the uh you know from the current generation just to see what they think about it
0: uh yeah they would i mean my six-year-old might freeze up and do that thing kids do where they're just like hi you know that kind yeah. of thing but my <laughs> nine-year-old my nine-year-old could probably do it and would she'd be very uh, uh excited if i asked her to podcast with me because she kind of knows i do this and Yeah, no, they would be down, and I think that'd be really fun. So, yeah, yeah, well, we could do that. We could do that on a future episode. For So, for sure. Um, Yeah, the other funny thing that happened when we were watching it with them is my six-year-old is really good with memory and faces. And the minute Edward de Souza walked onto the screen, she was like, oh, daddy, daddy, that's the boy from Kiss of the Vampire. Oh wow. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, that's impressive. <laughs> I was like, I can't... don't think I would have picked that out. I so. know. I was, like... I was like, I didn't, honest to God, I didn't make that connection immediately. And, you know, and, and I thought it was funny, she said the boy. <laughs> she she called him a boy. But um, but yeah, and I I I beat it to make sure she was right. And I was like, it is. It's <laughs> like that's the main character from Kissing the Vampire. And she got that like w- like the second he walked on frame she was and she didn't see the whole movie of kiss of the vampire she saw like scenes from it so it's fascinating to me that she was able to make that connection so quickly so i thought that was cool too
1: that's fantastic i uh and this is like i i honestly don't know how i would rank this against all the others because i do really really love it there are things that that kind of annoy me a little bit about it too, but then things that I absolutely adore. I, I love Herbert Lom. I love the mask. I love uh, kind of the backstory. I do think that some of the, uh, I, the midpoint of the movie treads a little water for me sometimes. And, you know, we can talk about it when we get there, but, uh, but overall I do, I do like it quite a bit. Um, I just, uh, I don't know. Is it one of my favorites? Uh, not quite. How does it rank for you? Have you seen how many Phantoms well, have you seen I, and how would this place work? That's for the you?
0: thing is you you have a more um you've seen more than I have, to be honest. I what I've seen, uh I saw the the forty three Claude Rains is forty three, right? That's like the universal Yes, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I've seen that. Um obviously I've seen this. Um I don't know if you count this, but I, I've always sorta of counted Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> Even though no, it's like different i don't no, know no, it just no, no.
1: Feels it's, like, it's fair like it's phantom it feels like inherent. a like
0: a like a spin on it i know it's not like a direct adaptation but it's
1: little little phantom little faust you know uh,
0: falls into the milieu of the phantom movies so whenever i rank them i kind of consider that
1: if you so. can uh if you can count that one then i can count uh phantom of the mall eric's revenge
0: uh, I am totally cool with Phantom of the Mall, and I, I I Here's the thing: I'll see you, Phantom of the Mall, and I will raise you a Phantom of the Megaplex. Have <laughs> never seen it. Ooh, that's one I've seen. It's a it's a Disney Channel original oh. Uh, from. Oh man, year wise, it's got to be late '90s, early '2000s. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I'm not actually going to rank that one, but I have to. <laughs> <laughs> um i've seen the uh fan of the opera from 89 which is a dwight h little joint and i'm a big little fan um because he you did for How saying we, that. or he did uh J- judgment night right that's that's mm-hmm. little isn't it yeah, mm-hmm. judgment night is so fucking good um he's a hell of a director he's a hell plot. of a director and yeah he deserves respect i know right anyway um so i actually think that movie's really fun i don't you know, it, it's not as classy as these other ones. And it's definitely like Freddie Krueger as, as fan of the opera. Um, but it's, it's a good time. Like I Scream factory, put that out. It's a really nice disc. Wait um, a second,
1: Paul. I'm sorry. Um, Dwight H little did Halloween for the return of Michael Myers, which is one of the best in that series. He did the Phantom of the opera. He did marked for death, uh, with, uh, uh what's his face? Uh, Steven Seagal. Uh yeah. Yeah. we can look past that though because you know, aside from that, it's a good movie. Uh he did Rapid Fire with Brandon Lee.
0: Oh, I forgot uh, about Rapid Fire.
1: Yeah. Um he did uh oh well uh he did Murder at 1600 he did uh Deep Blue, which is a TV movie, he did um Anaconda's The Hunt for the Blood Orchid, Tekken and Last Rampage. So you know, he, he directed a lot of television, though, so that's good.
0: Uh, and he had a good run. Like, that that 80s uh, to early 90s run is very solid. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. Any, any director would be, pr- I think, pr- should be proud to have that in their career. He also but, directed uh, Free Willy <laughs> 2,
1: The Adventure Home.
0: Well, you know what? That probably made a ton of money. It <laughs> <He laughs> probably gave him a great paycheck. <laughs> he deserved it. Um, This scene jump I know you I I'm, I'm kind of jumping away from your question real quick, but I just want to comment on the scene. This I find the scene really, really well done. I like how it, it's sort of the classic like producer trying to seduce the person who needs to depend on him scene. And I like how she doesn't just succumb to it, like submit to it. She sort of like intelligently maneuvers it.
1: Yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't succumb, but neither. Still, do, she's smart enough to not recoil. In yeah, a way. it's
0: it's such a, a powerfully. It's it's an upsetting scene. I find it very upsetting. Um, obviously for for obvious reasons, and and her expression. I think it's just a scene that really shows off her acting chops. Um, you know the expressions that she uses and the way she sort of is attempting to rebuke his advances with her attitude. Um, and then I think it's really smart how she involves uh, Harry. Like the the way she engages him around it is kind of like how she's kind of like, he wants me to go rehearse right now. If you could spare any time, I would really appreciate it. Like she she she's being incredibly political about it, um, which I find speaks to her intelligence and capabilities and also just the unfortunate times that she's in um and how she sort of has to carry herself if she wants to have a career which is which is shitty as hell but the reality of her situation
2: silence now
0: i've offended jinx
1: Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I had the microphone muted. I was, I was like, I was, I was, like I was, I was yapping what away for about, uh, <laughs> about 20 seconds. No, what I was going to Listen, was, be like, uh, <laughs> no, I was, I was yeah. saying, um, no, Christine here. Like I, I agree with you and I want to make it clear when I said it was very smart of her earlier, like I, I, she in no way should have been put in that situation. But like you said, I mean, it is great that she knows how to maneuver that where, you know, she's protecting herself, but she's also protecting her career. And then she finds a very, you know, smart way out of that situation, you know, yeah. without actually bringing the confrontation to a head. Uh, it still ultimately proves damaging because, I mean, Goff's character is well, a son yeah. of a bitch, but. Yeah, he's a piece of
0: shit. And I also, very, so very like, I think this is a really nice uh, meat cute for them, too. Like, I like that it turns into sort of a clever well, you probably didn't eat because you were with that piece of shit and, and you didn't want to you know, <laughs> feel uncomfortable. Are you hungry? She's like, I am starving. Let's go eat. Like, I think that's such a funny end to that scene. Like, it, It's a scene that could have felt really dirty and upsetting, and instead they turned it into something lighter, which while I, I don't want to undercut, like you said, the sort of the upsetting nature of what happened, but I also like that they – managed to salvage it into something that was endearing to the characters but for me it's really the moment where i realize like heather sears is a, a really a great actress not just a great singer in that regard um and yeah and it does, was
1: you know it, it, it i don't think that they you know by virtue of how creepy the early part of that scene is obviously the filmmakers were aware of what they were doing and you know, the the kind of pre- situation they were presenting. But, you know, I think in ending it on kind of that, like you said, a meat cute it allows us to take the same sort of breath that she does at the end of that yeah. scene once it's over with. You know, that bit of relief.
0: Yeah, and it and it shows that there's, there's a little bit of hope in the world, you know, as opposed to just being like completely hopeless and dour. Because Harry's also a producer and he's not a piece of shit. You know, and and that's good to see. But I also think it's a commentary, like it's Hammer, sort of sub, subversively commentating on the nature of their industry. Even though this is a period piece, um, unfortunately, as we all know, like that that scene with Michael Go there is like still happening. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's still a problem in Hollywood. Shit yeah. like that. So you know, it's it's sort of a timeless comment on this very pervasive issue in art where people know like, well, this is something you really care about. You're going to do it either way. So therefore I can get what I want out of you first. Um, And if you don't do it, I'll just find someone who will. Uh, um, And that's a really sort of fucked up notion that also speaks to the core story of the phantom. You know, it, it, it alludes to the bigger issue at hand.
1: No, I agree. And it is, you know, I, and my hat's off to them too, for, actually treating that situation with the kind of weight that it deserves. Because, I mean, you're you're a little bit younger than me, but you still, you grew up in the 80s and 90s, right? Like, yeah. you, we've heard throughout the years those jokes about the casting couch and stuff like that, and it was always used as a punchline uh, in regards to, you know, certain actresses who had gotten certain roles and stuff. And it's it always struck me as kind of icky and not funny at all, whether it be on you know, somebody making a crack on a talk show or, you know, in a magazine or something like that. And, you know, here we are nearly 60 years ago and hammer is presenting that situation and they're not playing it for laughs. And I do, you know, I, I appreciate that, you know? Um, Yeah, I agree.
0: I totally agree. And, um, so to kind of answer your original question, how would I rank this? Um, like I said, I saw the 89 Phantom and I have seen the Joel Schumacher musical, which just full disclosure, I haven't seen it since like the DVD when it came out. So I probably can't really like accurately say how I feel about it. I thought it was fine when I saw it. I didn't not like it, but I didn't like love it. Um, My ranking. So this is actually my my favorite Phantom. Um, oh, nice. I really, really love. I think the the only thing I think the forty three the forty three version to me is the most sort of like ornate and gorgeous. Um, that movie is just really, really beautiful and breathtaking, and the way it was shot, especially for the time it was made, you can tell they put in just a ton of effort into sort of the filmmaking of it. This movie I find more like emotionally engaging than that one and that's sort of why i land with this being more my favorite i don't think it's as and i know it's a um uh a terrence fisher joint and i love my i love me some terrence fisher and i think it's very well directed but hammer just didn't have the budget that universal had you know when they made their movie for the time that it was made um so at any rate um i i do this is my preferred version by far
1: yeah, that's fair. I, you know, I. It's funny looking back on it. Like I, I kind of I I I guess why I have trouble ranking them is because each one gives me something entirely different. Sure. Uh, that I that I want like out of out of the story as a whole. So you know I, uh, you know if I want like an accurate adaptation of the story, you know I I I really love parts of the 1925 version and. Lon Chaney's makeup is absolutely spot on or, you know, the mid 80s cartoon is, you know, just shockingly uh, faithful, uh, which you wouldn't expect. Um, but then, you know, for something just that's just pure opulence, you know, I, I adore the Joel Schumacher version now for that, you know, and I, I think the performances are great. And, you know, I love the sort of spirit with which that movie is created. Um, hmm.
0: I, I, I guess I got to rewatch that one. It, I mean, I, I'm telling I you, I, I should didn't.
1: I did not care for it when I first, and I cut it in theaters. I cut it on the big screen and at being a huge hammer nerd, I was like, or being a huge phantom nerd, rather I, uh, I couldn't wait to see it. And then like halfway through, I was like, I am not connecting to this at all. And then, uh, for whatever reason, watching it again, it was the first time I'd revisited the movie in 15 years. Mm. Uh, I watched it on Blu-ray and absolutely loved it. And here is the second Doctor himself, Patrick Trout. I
0: was going to say, isn't that guy a, a Doctor Who? <laughs> he
1: is He's the Doctor Who who kind of gave the Doctor his doctoriness, if that makes any sense. Uh, the guy, funny. William Hartnell, uh, the guy who played the first Doctor, played him as kind of a crotchety older man with flashes of heart. Patrick Trouton came in as the first regeneration, the second doc, and he infused him with this sort of manic quirkiness, uh, who could also be crotchety, you know, and who also had a big heart or hearts as a word yeah. character. Uh, but he's the guy who kind of put the template in place for what that character could and arguably should be so. Uh, yeah, it's very neat to see him here playing such a wildly different role. It pretty much—I mean, this is him three years before he played the Doctor. So, Paul, have you seen? Have you taken that plunge
0: yet with Doctor Who? Uh, I watched. Um, gosh, uh, whew, okay, I'm bad at this. The new—the new version. <laughs> um, the first guy who did one season. Uh, what was his name? Ecclestein. Uh, Ecclestein. Okay, I saw his. And then I watched the David Tennant. All of the David Tennant.
2: all oh, the so movies, you have. and Yeah,
0: yeah I, I saw all of David Tennant through to the end. And then I watched, like, six or seven Matt Smiths. And then I stopped. And I, well, I didn't stop because I didn't like it. I just kind of, like, I was, I was very into David Tennant. I got really into Tennant. And then, like, when it switched, it it just, like, I wasn't as into it. And then one day I just, like, I didn't watch it. And then one day turned into a week and a month. And then, you know, I just kind of moved on to other things. So I, I watched a chunk of Doctor Who, and I really enjoyed what I saw. Um, and I'm not, like, against watching it again. I just, you know, I just kind of stopped and... It moved on without. So, me. <laughs> you stopped
1: about halfway through Matt Smith's first season. Yeah, that, and yeah. You, yeah, you missed one of the greatest hours of television I have ever seen, which is mm-hmm. Vincent and the Doctor. Uh, the Doctor, Matt Smith's doc, uh, 11, and Amy and Rory basically meet Vincent Van Gogh. And it is. It has maybe one of the most powerful endings I've seen, uh, easily on that show, but also maybe in television. You know, it, oh. it's not quite up there with Six Feet Under, but my God, will it pull the tears from you? And it has something really beautiful to say about art. And huh. Uh, okay, I won't say I, and anything I liked, more than that. I but.
0: liked uh, Doctor Who quite a bit, and I, I intend to someday. My brother's really into doctor who as well um and he's more into it than i am he's watched like you know beyond where i watched i just it was one of those things where i i i think it's because eccles was only there for a season i got really into Tenet. and when he left it was hard it was hard to like care about the character in the same way or feel like he's the same character because it was a different actor that's the it, journey it that every really difficult fan for me <laughs> yeah and i and i just felt like i was like oh crap. In my eyes, I was like, I've already seen, like, my ideal version of this character. And I get that that's Doctor Who, that that it's going to change. Like, you're not. But it was hard to continue and to care in the same way for me. So if you liked Tenet that much, did you tear up at I Don't Want to Go? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I was bawling. (laughs) at <laughs> the, the finale? Oh shit, man. Yeah, I mean, I teared up a bunch. I but I also like full disclosure about me. I don't know if you know this about me. I cry in like every movie. I cr- <laughs> Do you like it doesn't even matter. Like it could be the shittiest low-brow comedy. If it has like a moment that's supposed to be emotional, there's a good chance I'll tear up. I'm just a very like weirdly emotional person. Like um I got a little misty eyed in Hubie Halloween. Like when oh, Come uh, on. I did, I shit you not when the, when his mother is saying like, none of you could take the abuse that he takes. Like when she's saying that stuff, like I got teared up. I did. And it's it just, I'm just that kind of, I have this weird, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like my empathy drive or whatever it is, but I'm, it's very easy for me to get into the headspace of someone who's like pulling it, like saying something emotional about a character. I think that like, happens just,
1: at a certain age like a stretch or it did for me anyway, it I, reminded I me of I don't know uh... why,
0: but like I get I I will tear up and I'll tear up during like previews for movies. <laughs> You're like in the trailer, like I shit you're not. Like there'll be like a two minute trailer. No, it's okay. You can laugh at me. It's fine. It's it's ridiculous. I I hate that I do it, but it's it's who I am. Like I've done that before. You know. I'll tell you this: any dog movie, if it's a dog movie, those are the worst. But I could see a two minute trailer for a straight to video dog movie and i swear i'll cry at the end of it because they always tell like they, the trailer goes on the whole journey of the movie and then you know how you know and it's sad like every dog so, movie ends with the dog dying and it's yeah bullshit. or something something, something bad it. happens to the dog otherwise there's no movie because it there's always destroys me conflict. so it's like if you watch a dog movie you know the dog's screwed fucking my and dog skipped like, man uh, Jesus oh. the dog I can't I won't honestly and and it's sad but it's like I almost won't even watch dog movies because I know they're going to like destroy me so it's like it takes a lot to get me to sit down to watch a dog The movie. final 2 minutes of my
1: dog skip is like the end of 6 feet under for me like it just <laughs> it destroys me
0: I I can't uh. yeah dog stuff is is terrible yeah I, I well yeah anyway Animals So don't know, but (laughs) that does, that
1: does remind me. I did go through a stretch in like my early to mid thirties where I was weirdly emotional about a lot of stuff like that. And it reminded me of this, uh, this bit. I don't know if you've seen the show, but the Sopranos when Tony Soprano, he uh, he's going through some stuff and he's this big, tough mafioso type, but he's getting ready for like a night out on the town. And this television ad comes up for like, I think it's, like, for a car. But it's one of those car ads that's a minute long and it tells a story about a family or something like that. And he just, like, his lip starts quivering and then, like, his eye twitches a little bit. And then he sits down and just starts bawling, like, not understanding what is happening
0: to him. You yeah. Know? And I like, like that. Had, that's a cool moment. That. And that's so... It's because it's, it's very real. And, and part of it is... I mean, one, those things are written to instigate emotion in you. And then, two, like we live in a culture that is so repressed emotionally like you're not supposed to feel things like we, we live in a world where it's like it, like crying is sort of not frowned upon but like you're supposed to do it in private you know what i mean that's how yeah, you're sort I think, of i think i think you were right the first time i think it is kind of frowned upon you know it is yeah, kind yeah, of like yeah. it's it, something
1: it, that you are meant so... to take out of sight and if you don't yeah yeah, we'll be
0: so, judged. And so many of us deal with things that we that therefore get pushed down. So there's these triggers and we don't know what those triggers are necessarily. We don't know when we're going to be triggered emotionally. And sometimes like if there's some specific part of your life that you're feeling particularly upset about and you see a commercial and it just so happens that it taps into that thing that has a million memories associated with it that you hadn't thought about in two years, you know, it's going to set you off. You know, I'll tell you the, the most recent thing (laughs) that utterly destroyed me was fucking, uh, haunting of Hill house, man, that, well, wow, that's just that that destroys any female. I had yeah. to leave the room and yeah. go into like the bathroom and like cry because I was like, I don't want to see I want my like wife to see me like completely lose it. So Not because I, I think she'd judge me, but because I was sort of like I shouldn't be this upset about a TV show because it spell it spoke to things that were in like that resonated with me. Like, like things that I've gone through and people I've lost and it really hit a chord that like I, it took me like an hour to come down from it. And I wasn't expecting that, you know, and, and sometimes that hits you in an hour long thing you watch. Sometimes that's a two minute commercial, but, um
1: but I know from talking to you now that you have never watched six feet under because if you had, no. you and i would not be talking right now it would have killed you i think and
0: and you're uh, just talking me out of watching it so. no
1: no 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 no. here's <laughs> the thing it uh the opening episode there is a scene where okay so you know the story is about a guy who basically comes back home because his father died and uh his family was involved in uh basically they were a family of morticians. So he, the, the, the thrust of the show is that this guy, basically he comes back home for his father's funeral, and the family needs him, so he winds up getting invested in the family business again. And the conceit of the show, like the, the, the sort of, the structure of it is such that the opening of every episode is somebody dying. And then that episode basically is about their preparation. Uh, you know, the, the the preparation of the body, but also the preparation of the family. And then sort of the emotional fallout of all of that and how it's handled, but also what's going on in the family's lives at the time. And it's just, it's funny that you were just talking about, uh, uh, you know, this idea that it's kind of looked down upon if you cry in the society. There's the scene in the opening episode where this guy who's come back home and is talking to his brother, who's very repressed, you know, and keeps all of his emotions. And he has to be, you know, because he's a guy who's the face of a funeral home, you know, he has to be composed. Um, but when they, when they actually go to their own father's funeral, this guy who's been around the world, he talks about how unbelievable it is that people won't allow themselves to grieve openly the way they actually feel. And that he witnessed this this funeral on the shores of, like, the small Italian town where they brought the body ashore in a coffin. And basically the family set in upon the coffin and started wailing. And you see it, actually, in the show. They cut to him watching this scene. And he was like – and they were just screaming their lungs out and beating their chests and pulling at their hair and pounding on the coffin – and he was like, and there was, he was like, it was terrifying, but there was something that seemed so healthy about it, you know? And then it's, yeah, and you cut to like the, 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 the funeral that they're at and everyone is stone faced. Everybody's trying not to cry. Yeah. Uh, you know, there has to be this appearance of uh, you know, just everybody reigning in their emotions. And that seems almost like deeply unhealthy to him now. And then that's kind of where the show goes. And Paul, I'm telling you, nothing could possibly prepare you for the final hour of that show. It is one of the,
0: I'm telling you,
1: no, here's the thing. Like when I say I cry during a movie, I mean, tears will stream down my face and that's crying during a movie. That's, that's it. That's the most that you'll get out of me. Something like big fish or, you know, a movie like that. Oh Um, dude,
0: big, big fish. The last 30 minutes, big fish. I am, I am sobbing. Okay. (laughs) I am like heaving. So when I, I, I binge watched
1: six feet under and it was, uh, I was powering through one night and it was three or 4am and I get to that final episode and I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. Paul front the last 15 minutes of that show. Here's what's brilliant about it. And I would not dare reveal it. And I hope that it is not spoiled for you at any point. Please do not look anything up, but only that show could do what it does. Like literally no other show, and I'm not talking about like, okay, having characters that we care about or this or that or whatever. Like literally there is a structural thing put in place in the last 15 minutes that literally only that specific show that you've been watching for five seasons could do what they do. And it is the most, it, it'll level you. Like I was,
0: all right, I rat- will- no, I'm not a fucking songs no i don't watch tv shows but i'll tell you what i will fucking make this work i'll watch it and i will cry and it's gonna devastate me and i'm gonna be mad at you for it well, if you <laughs> but uh, you know now, what i like i come down from uh, hill house you're gonna need i'm
1: not joking about this you're gonna need a day for six feet under It it will be so much work,
0: Jinx. It's a lot of work for me emotionally. I am, I am an emotional person. Like if you ever talk to my wife, it's funny. I married somebody who's like very different than me. And I don't want to make her sound like cold or something, but she's more like in control of her emotions. Like she's not somebody who like gets upset very often. Whereas I'm somebody who like is very easily emotionally triggered. Um, and some of that comes from just, like, I, I. there were some things in my life that happened when I was younger that, like, were very emotionally traumatic. And so, like, I never... I don't know. I don't know what it did to me, but it, <laughs> it made me a very emotional person. Um, and... But I, I the older I get, the more I realize, like, how important it is to let yourself feel things as they happen, like you were saying. Um, and whenever I think about that, like, in recent movie terms, like... That story you are telling me about the sobbing over the coffin, that reminds me a lot of what I liked about oh, Um, yeah. You know, where... And everyone's like, oh, you know, there's some like where... You know, because there's this sort of belief where it's like she's better off... Well, spoilers for *Midsummer*, Where she's better off with the cult. You know, and I was like, but they're cult. They're killing people. <sighs> I'm just like... But, but here's the thing. Emotionally, that's why people say that. Because it... it Very rarely, and I'm I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying like in a movie, you're given two hours of content and you only see certain things. And one of the things you see is people allowing you and supporting you in feeling the immense pain you feel. And that isn't something we get in regular society. And that is more valuable than almost any other type of support. And yet it's denied to us almost at every level. Um, and, and, in fact taught to us that we're not supposed to feel like one thing I'm big about with my girls is like, feel the way you feel. If they're upset, I want them to, I want them to understand that they're upset and know that that's okay. I don't want them. I don't be like, you know, Oh, toughen up, put on a smile. You know, I don't say those kinds of things, um, upper lip, chin Right, up. Like, like walk it If off. you're upset, be upset. That's okay. You know, that, that's, that's how you feel. You know, and obviously you have to behave and thing like, you know. But if there's an emotional thing that happens, like let yourself experience that grief when it's happening, because if you don't, that grief is is going to become something monstrous, right? Like like Babadook kind of thing, you know, where it's like it becomes an actual ghost that's gonna haunt you. Even if it isn't real, it it is real. <laughs> um and it will destroy you. Um, and you know, so anyway,
1: absolutely, absolutely true. I, you know, it's funny. I have, uh, <laughs>
0: um,
1: I, I was somebody who definitely tried to kind of repress those emotions. Like for the first half of my life. Anyway, uh, I was, I was the guy who would go to a funeral and, you know, I, uh, I don't know if I've had enough to drink to get into this. Um, but <laughs> this you know, is, I, this is like going deep. We're going deep. <laughs> One of my, the first funeral that I ever went to was my best friend's funeral, like when I was 10, you know, so that sort of like, uh, nobody told me to not cry. You know, nobody told me to, you know, hold all of that in, but you, you know, you, you learn from experience and you look around and everyone is trying to do that thing where it's like, you know, everyone the, the the parents are trying to keep the emotions under wrap for the sake of the children, but then, which you know, they do the best that they can, and I get that. But then, the flip side of that is, well, what lesson are you teaching the children? Then you're teaching right. them that they are not meant to show emotion when you know their best friend is in a fucking casket. You know, um, yeah. so the the lesson was bottle it up. And, but you're right. It eventually comes out, you know, I was, I was, I was a nice kid. And then after that, you know, for a while I was, uh, I was, I was, it it came out in different ways, you know? Uh, And so, but that was a lesson that kind of stuck with me for the longest time. Uh, You know, whether it be funerals of friends or family members, you know, you show up and you stay composed, you know, and you offer condolences and, you walk around and make certain that everybody's okay. You sort of act in service of others if you are able to keep yourself composed, and you make sure that everybody else is okay and that they're well on their way to composing you know themselves, you know, which is so fucking wrong. And I, it actually took about a half a decade ago I, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, my <clears throat> my paternal grandfather, I, I helped sort of take care of him. Uh, World War II vet, great man, uh, and uh, completely independent up until about the time that he was eighty-seven, and then he had a heart attack. And then uh, after that, he needed some care, but uh, you know he couldn't drive anymore. And so, you know, I would go over and I would take him. He uh, <laughs> he had uh, this group of war buddies, like war vet buddies, that he would meet with and have coffee with every day. So I would take him to that and you know, fix him lunch and dinner and, you know, make certain that he was okay. And, uh, so when he passed away, you know, I, I, I was the, I was asked to be a pallbearer, <clears throat> which was the first for me.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I did that same thing. Like I, I hadn't been to a funeral in ages, but there's that sort of like, you know, locking everything down as best you can. And, yeah. uh, when I got there, the moment my hand like touched the, uh, the casket or whatever, it was just, it was over with, like I couldn't yeah. like, and what I realized in that first two seconds was like, you know, I don't even want to hold it in. I don't yeah. even want to rain it you in. you shouldn't, like, yeah, you
0: shouldn't have to, you know, it's like. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so yeah. I even, I don't care if I was a fucking spectacle or not, you know, I, I, I didn't give a damn. And. What was weird was it seemed that nobody else did either, you know, he was, he was the patriarch. He was the head of the family. He was the glue that held together, you know, numerous different, smaller factions and families, you know, and so there, there was sort of, by the end of that day, there was no appearance that anybody was actually trying to rein in their emotions whatsoever. It was just impossible to, and the lesson that I took from that was, you know, by the time that day ended, I, it was all gone you know, obviously I was still sad. Obviously I was still grieving, but that right. like, there, there was, there was no longer a feeling of having bottled something up that was eventually going to come out in a negative way later. And yeah. so from that point on, I sort of told myself that, you know, never again, like I'm not, I'm not going to try to keep those emotions. Yeah. Feel them. You and, keep- know?
0: and that's, that's part of loss is, is allowing yourself to feel the loss. Um And that's, that's okay. I mean, no, I, I get exactly what you're saying. And, um, yeah, being a pallbearer is, is a difficult <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, and it, it strikes in a different way. Um, you know, I've had to do it, I think twice I had to do the carrying the casket thing and, and both times were pretty tough. I Um, I
1: get it. The whole thing with being a pallbearer, like part of me is like, you know, I, I understand the importance of it and certainly, you know, doing like one last bit of service to the person that's being, you know, born. No, yeah. The final resting place. I get that. But at the same time, part of me is also kind of like, you know what? Maybe just hire people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like 50 50 on that. Like, I'm glad that I did it. But at the same time, (sighs) like when you have six different people who are emotionally racked, like, I don't
0: know that you know, that's the safest F- thing. Funerals you know? in general, like it, it, look for certain people, they're very helpful. they're a good thing for me. I don't, I don't like them. I don't care for them. I don't like what it is. It feels uh, for me when I was, when I was a kid and dealing with it, it was like, it felt like it was for everyone else, but me. Like, I was like, I didn't want to be there. I don't want to go through this. I don't have to talk to 30 different people (laughs) about this horrible thing I'm going through. And yet I had to, to be polite, you know, like that, that's how I felt. And it would have been a lot easier for me to deal with like the loss that I was going through. Had I not had to do all that shit, but I had all these family members being like, well, that you, you, you need to go do this. And this is part of it. And all, all these people are coming out. I'm like, I don't give a shit about the people coming out. <laughs> I, I don't care about any of them. And frankly, most of them I'm never going to see again. Like they're coming out this one time to say they're sorry to me. Are they really that sorry? Cause I'm never, most of them don't talk to me regularly and they're not going to talk to me again. So I don't know. I, I, I like, I get that. It's this thing that we need to do or that some people feel is helpful. It's I, I don't, I get very little, from the whole experience of funerals, but some of it just comes from my experience with them. And I know that that's kind of just me and everything well, else. Think, well, but... I think everybody should be given
1: that option to do what they want. And at a certain age, you can, you can just choose not to take part, but, you know, even for children, I think it should be laid out for them. Like, this is what this is, and this is the purpose of this, but this could also be the fallout of that. And here, you know, I, I, I remember when my uncle passed away, uh, probably, Probably a decade or so ago now, uh, this was the guy who introduced me to comic books. You know, this was a mm. guy who shot short films with like a VHS camera. He showed me how to do in-camera tricks. You know, uh, with my mom and I doing like magic tricks and stuff. You know, he was a guy who, you know, introduced me to so much. And his fun, funnily enough, uh, his daughter, my cousin, is the one who introduced me to uh, the Phantom of the opera and. You know, she like loaned me the book when I was really young and probably too young to appreciate the book at the time. But it got me into the various movies and, you know, wanting to see the musical and stuff like that. So uh, but anyway, when he passed away, I remember having a conversation with a friend about my concerns about going to this funeral because I was like, you know, I the last time I saw him, he and I caught up about a bunch of comic books. You know, and it was at Christmas, you know, when the rest of the family was around and it had only been like a month and a half prior, something like that. But he and I got to catch up that way. And I was like, I don't know that I want my last memory of him to be in a, in a fucking casket, you know, like I, if I don't go to the funeral, then I no longer, that, that is not an image that will sear itself into my brain. And I remember my friend who is a good person and is a caring person, but in this one instance said something so off the cuff, which is, well, you have to go and pay your respects. And I remember thinking like, uh, well, fuck. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Sure. You know? Yeah. Good point. Of course, of course I do. Right. Cause that's yeah. what you do. And I did. And so guess what? Even as I'm talking to you right now, I think about my, my uncle and I am reminded of, The first time he introduced me to an Overstreet comic book guide and Superman and Batman. But I'm also reminded of him being in a casket. You know, I can talk about him shooting fun, short films, but also I'm reminded of him being in a fucking casket. That's
0: an image you'll never. Same thing. Anyway, sorry, I'm going to cut you off.
1: (laughs) No, no, you're fine. No, it's. But that's that's what kind of bugs me about that idea. It's like everybody should be able to grieve. Everybody should be able to let go on their own terms. And we shouldn't necessarily be beholden to what society tells us is natural or normal because it's going to be different for everybody. If you want to yeah. go to a funeral, fine. If you don't, also fine. If you want to go to a funeral and rein in your emotions and then fucking cut loose later to get it all out, okay, fine. But if you want to go and just – Sob your fucking brains out or whatever in front of
0: everybody else and not feel self conscious about it. Then do that too. You know. Yeah, my hope is that someday, my hope, it, when 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 I inevitably die, I I've asked my whole family. I'm like, please don't do a funeral. Just have like a get together. You know, like get together, hang out, talk. If I come up, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, like, just have a conversation and feel what you feel. You, you know, no obligations, whatever. Like, that's just talk, you know. I don't, the whole, like, procedure of the funeral, it's not me. It's not what I'm about. And I don't want anybody to have to go through something that they feel they have to do. Um, But... You know, it's, it's one of those things in like the casket piece of it. I get it. Everybody's different too. You know what my experience is and what I want is going to be different than someone else. And someone else might really need that catharsis of like, maybe for them seeing them in a casket, you know, I I will say Hill house deals a lot with this. um, And they talk a lot about it, which I found fascinating. um, About how like, this is really helpful for people and it's how they experience those emotions I don't really think that's how that shows up in real life. <laughs> I think that's a really pleasant way of looking at it. It's a really nice way of spinning it. But I think in real life, it it just comes down to sort of this thing you have to do that feels very sort of forced and um, uh, like a, like a ritual of sorts, you know. And I think Night of the Living Dead handles it really well, where they talk about it's like. He's like, you know, every year we come to this gravestone and we we buy this wreath. He's like, I wonder how many times that they've just repurposed the wreath. I wonder how many times we bought the same wreath. (laughs) You know, he's he's like, this is all so pointless. Like, you know, we do it because our mom makes us do it. And that's kind of what a funeral is. Like, a lot of the people who go, for every person that goes because they care, there's a person who goes because they feel like they have to. Or they feel some sort of, you know, obligation towards it um and they're not the ones going through the emotion the people who are close to the person that died is going through something terrible and that person now has to like be cordial with a bunch of people who are essentially strangers that they don't see that often so you don't have a lot to talk about and it's not the time to go like well what are you up to lately you know it's just it's it's a weird thing um and maybe it's a good excuse to get together but I think there are better excuses to get together. And if you're going to use it as an excuse to get together, have a freaking party. Then go have some fun, you know, like, and, and share stories of the person, you know, I don't know, but, no, um, no, I agree with you. That's kind of where I'm coming from. This commentary for fan of the opera has become very, very deep and introspective. Wait, wait, I
1: can marry it. I can marry it all together, uh, <laughs> with a question do you think our phantom here is the kind of guy who bottles it up or lets it out? Or is the answer both?
0: Uh, uh, both, I guess, because he's bottled up a lot, but he's also willing to exercise his, you know, intensity on, on the opera house itself on the opera. Like he's, he's sabotaging it, but he's doing it in secret, which suggests um, that it's a repressed action you know? So I think he's more repression than anything else because he hides, but it's, but I think it's indicative of what happens when you repress things. They do come out in violent ways, but not in the most, you know, healthy or helpful of ways.
1: And that's, I mean, at their heart, that's what ghost stories are, of course. And I think certainly in the case of this, like that, it is definitely a story of repression. Um, for sure. But I do love it. You know, I just, Herbert Lom is this character and how they chose to portray him. He's such a striking character where you can see, like, you know, again, that mask is rather rough. But because it is, it's so much more striking as a result. That looks like something that he made himself. He has really no interest in presenting himself as being anything other than, well what he is you know he wants to cover up his face but he doesn't care if he looks angelic he doesn't care if he has a nice pristine porcelain mask covering you know just so many of his scars or whatever the hell he's hiding behind there you know the the fact that he dammed up one of the eyes or whatever so crudely i think just makes it all the more powerful that look and plus it's kind of like this unhealthy like unnatural color so you could never mistake it for an actual face but then you get the glimpse of his skin beneath it and it's just as unhealthy looking, you know, it's just as kind of modeled and gray. And so are his hands and his hair is kind of like this bleached uh, kind of white, kind of gray, kind of blonde, you know, but he, he he's unique, I think, as far as versions of this character go. And he's probably the most. And I'm including Juan Chaney in this, keep in mind, but I think in a weird way, he's the most grotesque version of the character, at least as far as how he appears, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, he very much looks like a corpse, you know, like he just, he looks dead. Um, he's, he's white skinned and his hair is sort of white and faded. And obviously his, when you see his face, like he looks like he's not alive. <laughs> um, and i definitely think that that's a more gruesome kind of appearance than any of the other phantoms why why do you think this um this derelict like helps him out you know the guy that sort of is his little ward i guess you could say or is he his ward i don't know i the way i always took it is that oh that's a great moment with the uh the is, sort of yeah.
1: apparatus that he's using to uh to stay underwater um no, the reason I took it, I I imagine, you know, he's probably not the most intelligent. You know, he was probably eking out a living underneath the uh, the catacombs, as it were. And I think uh, Lom's phantom probably just kind of took him under his wing and took care of him in exchange for him being kind of his, his muscle, in a way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, and it also started without him knowing that that would happen. You know, it's interesting that that guy would have just Found this dude in the water and just been like well i'm gonna help you but i think that also speaks to sort of the class structure that's always present in hammer films you know like the poor taking care of the poor or the mismanaged um i think that's part of it is that he recognizes that this is a person who's wronged by the society above them and therefore he's his people
1: yeah that makes sense you know, they are kind of, they're both outcasts in their own way. Uh, God, he's so striking there. That's such a great shot.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. For, yeah, for sure.
1: And I love the organ, too. I love the world that he's sort of created under there. To me, it's it's one of the better looking versions of that space that we've had where it rides that line between being really interesting and really kind of like, this is a guy that obviously wanted to build something that was kind of comfortable and kind of reminded him of what he wanted in the above world. But at the same time, it doesn't look too opulent. It doesn't look too stagey or dressed in the way that maybe uh, the the space in the Schumacher version does. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. yeah, It feels real, you know,
0: other than like, I'm not quite sure how he would have gotten an organ down there. Um, It's a believable. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's a believable set for the most part. Um, I mean, the phantom itself is going to sort of like beg you to kind of suspend your disbelief a bit. Um, Oh, I, I love that all of this is shot at canted angles or well, they called it uh, a, oh gosh, Dutch angles. I don't know why, but that's what hammer or the creators referred to it as was Dutch angles. I don't know if that was like what canted angles derived from, but I like that there's a different shooting style to the flashbacks.
1: Well, it perfectly tells us like in a, in a, in a sort of like non, maybe obstructive way, like that. This is a flashback because they've shot it so differently, but they're not going to go so far as to soften the edges of the frame. Right. Yeah. Do any wavy lines as a transition, you know,
0: it's a smarter way of shooting it. And it also gives it a sense of like, Um, dread in a way you know like canted angles are just sort of off-putting you know something's wrong you know something's quirky Um, plus like given what we know about uh, you know the character he's facing off against we know that he's in for some shady business okay paul you ready for this
1: the dutch angle also known as dutch tilt canted angle or oblique angle is a type Ah. of camera shot which involves setting the camera at an angle on its roll axis so that the shot is composed with vertical lines at an angle to the side of the frame or so that the horizon line of the shot is not parallel with the bottom of the camera frame this produces a viewpoint akin to tilting one's head to the side in cinematography the dutch angle is one of the many cinematic techniques often used to portray psychological uneasiness or tension in the subject being filmed the word dutch in this context is a bastardization of the word Deutsch the German word for German it is not related to the Dutch people or language it originated in the first world war as Navy blockades made the import and export of movies impossible the German movie scene was part of the expressionist movement which used the Dutch angle extensively
0: I love that I yeah I always knew it as canted angle but Dutch angle is apparently the true term love so it's it. pretty cool <laughs> pretty I feel like I ball. just went to film school <laughs>
1: Herbert Lom looks fantastic as this character here too. Like he is, he really does bring kind of that um, uh, uh, Claude Rains to his version of the character. And again, like I think, you know, as far as all the screen phantoms go, Claude Rains and Herbert Lom, their phantoms are the closest in nature, I think. But uh, but he's such kind of like yeah, Claude Rains played his Eric uh, as kind of a. Kind of a pathetic character, but also a guy who had danger bubbling beneath the surface, you know? This yeah. is a guy, you know... He looks like lady...
0: an older, like a Michael Keaton kind of look to him. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, And he, <laughs> he really does. No, you're right. <laughs> I was uh, thinking, like, am I watching Birdman? What's going on? <laughs>
1: yeah. But he, uh you know, I, I I like the Lom's approach to the characters that, you know, he's he's kind of a decent man who's just had a bad string of luck. And he doesn't get violent until, well, that moment. Yeah.
0: How come the woman in the carriage is just, like, totally cool? She's like, she just saw that guy beat this dude down with his cane when he was like, you stole my music. He's like, yeah, I straight up did. And she didn't care. Well,
1: the world is full of Melanias, sir. So. Yeah. She she has that look on her face, the woman who rode off in the carriage. I don't really care. Do you? I mean, that's totally what
0: that was. Yeah.
1: Money. Money could
0: buy a lot of things.
1: Oh, I, I imagine th- there's a divorce in, uh, in, a, in a certain uh, uh, sherbert skinned dude's future. Let's uh, hope
0: that we see that person be dragged, kicking and stre- screaming from his current residence. Very sad. well, that would be it Looks like that's going to be the case because that would be great. That would be, that would be the best possible ending
1: <laughs> right now. Like, I mean, they're building scaffolding up to build the wall higher around the White House, and he fired, you know. I mean, it, it's getting to the point where, you know. I, <laughs> Just this past weekend, you know, before it was called, even people were saying, like, will he attempt a coup? Is there going to be a constitutional crisis? And deep down, you're kind of okay. like, no, no.
0: We'll How could there that be? That what crisis? Like, no. what can he claim?
1: You know, but now, like after today, you know, this is Monday after the Saturday that it was called. You know, there are certain machinations afoot, obviously, with uh, that turtle-faced son-of-a-bitch McConnell siding with him after initially saying that he needed to accept the results and move on. Where you start to get the feeling that maybe they are fucking going to try and pull something. So, funny. yeah, I. but here's what I'm afraid of. Is it'll be very curious to see who we ultimately wind up having to depend on to drag him out of that house in the first place. And whether or not we we have, you know, those people to actually do their duty as opposed to swearing an allegiance to obviously a guy who's doing this damnedest to be a full on fascist. I don't know, you know?
0: Hmm. Well, yeah, man, can we uh, just as we do every episode, comment on real fire in movies. It looks gorgeous, movies.
1: and I don't know why people try it any other way. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass, but you know what? Just Dude, his
0: foot it. caught on fire as he walked through it. How love fucking it. cool is that?
1: Uh, this
0: scene is... His performance performance uh, hurts to watch. Well, there's a factoid about this scene that's kind of interesting, is he refused to do this scene because Hammer just said, do it, like, on the set they had. He goes, well, no, this is, like, real wood you have to build me something I can hit my head against. And they're like, no, you need to do it. And he said he wouldn't do it. So they had to spend half a day building a rubber wall for him to hit his head against. So he would do that scene. The fact that they expected him to do it otherwise. Yeah, it's a little shitty. That's come on, man. <laughs> they, yeah, they expected him to, like, throw his head against a, a wood wall. And he was like, I won't do it. And, Good. and Good for him. build it. Yeah.
1: Good for him for putting his foot down on something like that. There there's no reason that anybody should ever be hurt on a film set. It's at the end Agreed. of the day, it's just a fucking movie,
0: you know? Yeah, they, they they built a rubber pillar that looked like stone. Um and it cost them a little bit, but he, he was always sort of he talks about it. He talked about it later in interviews. He was like, I just thought that was really dumb that we even had to have that argument. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But um I would would like to
1: think that Fisher didn't have much of a hand in that argument, you know, but uh, I
0: would say that was more the production. I doubt that that was Fisher, although Fisher might have been encouraging him to do it, you know, to get to get the day done because they lost half a day shoot for it. But I mean, half a day versus hurting himself doesn't seem like very much.
1: Paul, just a moment ago when he had his head tilted you know, toward the water, I mean,
0: to your daughter's credit, he's got some Michael Myers going on there. That's what I'm saying. Like, I was really impressed with that connection because he very much is a Myers-esque look about him. And sometimes the way he acts is Myers-esque. And I was like, you haven't even seen a Halloween movie and you're already making, like, like Myers connections to classic horror figures. I was like, I'm so excited to see you grow up. And she's asking her, her gift, to, her Santa gift that she's asking for is a video camera she wants uh, she has an ipad she's like i want she's like i want a video camera my wife was like you can just shoot movies on your ipad she goes no i want something that's just for movies and i was like that's awesome i was like and and my wife is like oh she doesn't need that i was like i was like but she but we should encourage that i was like we should like we should absolutely get her that because it would encourage this creative spark that she has to make movies
1: the, yeah, the fact that she is reaching toward that right now at such a young age is like yeah. She made, is exciting. she made her
0: own movie this year, like all on her own for my actor fest. She uh, she shot a movie called The Creature with a friend of hers from school that she's sort of social distance hanging out with from time to time, and um they had a little monster movie that they shot. You know, I mean, granted, it's very rudimentary, but like they made their own movie and she they, edited they it made it on movie. her own. She, I didn't help her at all. Like, so she import, she shot it on an iPad. She imported the video into iMovie and she edited it and exported it. And that was that. And I was like, I, I didn't do that when I was nine. <laughs> so you're ahead of me. <laughs> Love it. That is awesome. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. I'm I'm excited to see what she ends up doing. I would love it if she, like, ends up becoming involved in, in that, you know, and making... I, I, I would love to sit down and watch my daughter's horror movie. That would be, <laughs> that'd be a true dream come true. Well, She's nine now, is that right? Yeah, she's nine.
1: Okay, so give her two years to make a feature-length film, and she can totally beat the record previously held by... Um... Oh, what was the... Uh... The young director, she's directing cool stuff now. Um, who made a movie when she was 12? Um, damn it, that's going to bug me.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I would love to see it. I, I would love to watch a movie made by a 12 year old. That's fantastic. My uh, uh, sister, uh, who, when I first started Fest, she was 12. Funny that you mentioned the, the age 12. So she made a movie when she was 12 for it and she's made a movie every year since and now she's um, she got her degree in like animation and stuff like that so and she cites Oktoberfest as a uh you know as something that inspired her to go into you know that kind of art and I was like that's awesome <laughs> that's that's my whole goal <laughs> i want other people to achieve great things and <laughs> love horror that's my hope same here
1: uh so pathogen uh, it was a 2006 uh, independent movie. It was a zombie flick written, directed, and produced by Emily either Hoggins or Hagens. Uh, she was 12 years old at the time, and there was wow. a documentary made about her called Zombie Girl. She's now 28. Oh, my God. I'm getting old. Uh, she's now 28, and she has since made um, several movies. There was The Pathogen, The Retelling. My Sucky Teen Romance, which I actually remember. Oh,
0: I've heard of that. Yeah. Uh, she was in Chilling
1: Visions, Five Senses of Fear, Grow Up Tony Phillips, Coin Heist, which I think was a Netflix movie. Uh, she's done a digital series. She she did an episode of VHS, like one of the installments for that. And she did the cold open segment in Scare Package.
0: Oh, Okay, interesting. Good for her. I watched Scare, Scare Package. What found, did you think? I thought it was fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, there, are, there are things that I love about it and things that I don't love.
0: But yeah. I, Yes, I would agree with that statement. I do love, uh,
1: I remember on a previous episode of the show, um, Lisa Ovies and her co-writer on, um, oh, Kevin from, um, oh, Puppet Killer. Sorry, I've had too many drinks at this point to to be able to rapid fire You're uh, fine. back to what's but um
0: we're we, in the latter half.
1: <laughs> one one time in the woods, the uh, what we affectionately refer to as the goo man segment is uh, Oh, that was
0: good. My favorite. I, like goo, man,
1: my, I was,
0: goo Man was very funny.
1: I still laugh my ass off at the very end of that bit where uh, you know, the, their their goo is sort of together and he's just yapping, 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 and she's calling for silence and he's like Oh, I can I cannot not talk. I cannot not talk all fucking day. All fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> just, it just bitchiness uh between those yeah. two was great. Uh, it was funny. I liked I liked Noah Segan's um segment, Mr. I thought it was really cool until I loved the first half of it. I don't know if I love how it how it wrapped up, you know? But uh I don't know, there there were things that I liked about each segment, but whether or not they they worked Fully by the end, I, you know, it, it, it felt, was kind of, it, it felt was, like
0: kind of long to me. Like, I don't know. I don't know how long it was. I don't have the runtime in front of me, but it, 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 it just, I don't know. I, I think there's something about anthologies, especially modern day anthologies, that they need to be, if they're, if they're disparate in the sense that it's, I don't know, not necessarily like an interconnected anthology, I feel like shorter the better. Um, but I don't know. It just, well, it's funny. I,
1: I just, I know I mentioned this on the last episode, which was again, only two days ago, but, um, I was just on Daniel Epler's, uh, cobwebs podcast talking about amicus anthologies. And one of the things that he and I talked about were, you know, a proper length placement of these shorts, you know, not every short has to be the exact runtime as the ones around that, you know, not everything has to be perfectly symmetrical in that way, but, you know, know where to place those. And with Scare Package, I feel like ending the entire movie on the longest possible segment was maybe a miscalculation, even if it dovetails in with, like, the beginning of the movie again. You know what I mean?
0: Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought um, the other anthology that hit Shudder recently was a, a Mortuary co- Collection. haven't seen it yet. See, and I thought that was a really good... Uh, anthology that that tied together really well and sort of like i don't know i I think that that might be not to sort of go after one or the other i just I felt that that was maybe a more successful outing I think scare package had a lot to offer, um but I think it was a little rougher around the edges, and the wrap around with uh uh mortuary collection made it feel more cohesive.
1: Paul, why do you think St. Joan as the piece that is being performed in this movie? It's a great
0: question. Um, it's something I've Hart...
1: over, but I don't know that I've ever answered it for myself. You know, with previous, you know, uh, uh, pieces, the previous compositions that have been trotted out in various versions of Phantom, you know, there, there is kind of a feeling that they mirror what's happening in, in the story, you know. Here, I, I, I don't quite know what it means. You know what I mean?
0: I guess I look at it in a very simple way. Um, she's a tragic figure who fights to accomplish what she believes in and is unwilling to waver from her mission. Um, even though the rest of the world condemns her for it. And I think the phantom sort of sees himself in that character. Hmm. Um, Because he's also sort of a condemned figure that is written off or forgotten about, um, that has been in a way put to death. Um, and yet he still is still trying to promote and defend his art, even though he gets nothing from it. He wants his art to exist in the world. Um, so I just i i don't know i that that's sort of how I saw it, and i love I love the tear you know the tear in his eye <laughs> what's well, so
1: nice that this is you know this is the one version of Phantom where the chandelier coming down isn't an act of malevolence by the phantom, like it's an act of sacrifice, you know uh even though he's not the one responsible for bringing it down, but you know uh, I, I I love that switch, I love that change
0: me too um and I think that like more than justifies that character like his his weird little guy. <laughs> um the removal of the mask is interesting there. Why does he remove the mask? I you know it's funny I was just thinking about that. I
1: think he I think he knew those were his final moments and he wanted to be himself cuz and he wanted to be as close to himself as possible. I don't think he enough, wanted to die as the phantom.
0: Yeah, the reason I asked that is when that happened, my 9-year-old was like flummoxed by it. She was like, "Why would he remove his mask there? Like why is he removing his mask? That doesn't make any sense. He doesn't have to remove it." <laughs> and she found it she was like, "That's so scary. Like why would he remove his mask?" And I'm like, I'm like, "Well, maybe part of the reason is they wanted they wanted to show you something scary at the end. Like there's there's a sense of like the audience wanting to see his face." And that's really the last time they could have So from a pure exploitation perspective, like that was your last chance to show the audience this guy's face from a character perspective, it's, you know, the mask is sort of his prison. And if he's going to die, he's going to die as who he is. Um, And so I I agree with you. I just think it's funny because, you know, her reaction was sort of why would why in the hell would he do that? (laughs) Well, I love that she, I
1: I kind of love that in a way because she called it out immediately like, you know, this doesn't make any sense, which in a way, I mean, it doesn't. (laughs) It's like, you know, if his only concern was to, you know, save Christine, then why take that extra second? But no, I mean, on a certain level, I think, yeah, I think he just wanted to be himself. He knew he was going to his death. So, you know, I I, I don't think, yeah, yeah, I, I, I like how you put it. It was kind of his cage. It was kind of his prison, you know, so I think he wanted to die free.
0: Yeah. I would agree. It's a good ending though. Um, And it, it definitely brings his character sort of full circle. Um, And, and it leaves him in a place that doesn't feel villainous. And again, it makes sense that it was written. If you really think about this movie being written for an aging Cary Grant, it kind of makes sense that he would be an empathetic figure.
1: Oh, with a lacked a last act of heroism. Certainly. Yeah. Like, and plus, I mean, yeah, it totally would have held on him longer. I think. Oh, had it yeah. been Carrie. Well, right I, mean, I think I think
0: you're right. I think we probably would have gotten more FaceTime
1: <laughs> if it was
0: <laughs> Cary Grant. Like they would have wanted to hide him. They would have. Well, I mean, it would have been plastered everywhere, like Cary Grant in this movie. Um, but, but yeah, that's *Fan of the Opera*.
1: Okay, so am I wrong about this? There are three different versions of this film on the Scream Factory set.
0: Yes, I was actually looking into that because, um, well, one of them's just a differently framed version.
1: The 166. So yeah. it's a little uh, window boxed.
0: Or not window boxed, but I mean, it's.
1: But you'll I think that's. slight the, bars on either side on a
0: widescreen film. I television. think that's the actual, like, original version of the film. And then the TV version has additional footage uh, that was shot by Universal in America without any input from Hammer at all. Really? Um, and this became really common practice in the early sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because do uh, they add Raymond Burr into the proceedings? They do not. They they sure. basically shot more footage of the cops like investigating and looking for um, uh, uh the. The Phantom, you know, after he escapes the fire, they shot like more footage of that so they could cut out violent scenes. The most egregious example of that was Kiss of the Vampire, where they literally shot about half an hour of additional footage added in characters, like oh a God. whole subplot. It's insane, Jinx. I wrote about it in um, one of my articles, but like, it's crazy how much they did. And and again, it was all done without director input or hammer's input at all. Universal did it on their own in their own lots and just added it into the movie and then gave it to the TV station. So like, yeah, this happened with a collect a bunch of movies. Love it.
1: Love, love it. I, I don't love it. I, if I were one of the filmmakers, I would most assuredly be pissed, but I kind of love that there are these weird alternate versions of these films too. kind of, you know, I I love weird, quirky film history like that.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's always weird when like, especially when you're watching them, like when they try to like infuse the scene into an existing scene, because the lighting is never right. And the actors aren't the same actors and there's no extras around them. So it's like, You'll see like a crowd scene and they'll cut to a close-up of two people who aren't in the crowd, you know, and they'll talk and they'll cut back to the crowd scene. Like they find like ways of editing in these characters. But um, it's yeah, it's 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 very it's a very weird thing they did. It was really just to extend the length based on commercial breaks and the fact that they were going to be cutting out anything that was deemed too violent for TV. That's fantastic. What,
1: what a, I don't know what Pacinas would have character, character would have said in once upon a time in Hollywood, what a picture, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I really do love this movie. Um, it's I, I, it's one of my favorites. So, and I mean, again, you know, hard to go wrong with Terrence Fisher. I mean, look at how many classic characters he touched and sort of left them with kind of this indelible mark that was uniquely his own, you know, hats off to him for that.
0: Yeah, we didn't really talk about Fisher this time around, although we've given him enough lip service to where I think we've we've done him justice. But I was going to say, we, was...
1: we've 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 done the man no wrong. I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, this was a commentary where we we definitely deviated for a solid like 45 minutes into uh, <laughs> into funerals and death. Um, but I, you know what? I, I, I think it, it was it was a good deviation and I think it was a good conversation. I like that it was sparked by something like Phantom. Um, and Terrence Fisher's direction in this movie is definitely very strong. It's, it's a striking film. It's a very pretty film. The lighting is gorgeous. There's some very, you know, like you said, the set design is great. Um, the way they tell the story, the canted angles and the flashbacks or the Dutch angles. I apologize. Um, it, it just reeks of Fisher's charm and grace and capabilities a director so uh yeah i definitely think that he brought a lot to this film and it's it's one of my favorite hammers it's definitely gosh i i i'd say top it's probably like top 10 for me at least oh same here yeah yeah yeah. uh oh well uh,
1: i don't know how many movies
0: uh you've seen more you've seen more hammer than me so you know you have a different (laughs) i mean the entire frankenstein cycle
1: takes up what, six or seven entries? So that doesn't leave a whole <laughs> lot of wiggle room beyond that. that that's
0: know? true. Yeah, the the Frankensteins outweigh the vampires, the, the Draculas, so to probably. speak. Other than Brides. Brides yeah, yeah. it's like
1: the point Frankenstein point. cycle, Brides of Dracula, uh, Phantom? Phantom, yeah. Phantom probably would be right up there. My uh, okay. Creatures is right up there.
0: What's higher, uh, Fan- Phantom or Captain Clegg? Ooh, that's
1: that's a good. Damn, that is a great question. It's a toughie.
0: It's a toughie. I think I have my answer actually. Since we um, just watched, it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, probably Phantom. It feels a little more satisfying as a story. I think there are as much as I love night creatures. Uh, it's a little wanting story wise in a couple of places. I think, and again, just for sheer production value and like the skill with which they're made. I mean, Phantom has it over night creatures fully.
0: I think so. I, I would agree. Kept Cap- night creatures, Captain Clegg, whatever you want to call it for me this time around, I kind of realized, Oh, this is sort of like a really great popcorn movie. Yeah. You know, it's like a really fun movie. It, it's not necessarily doing anything too profound. So I think watching Phantom again, I'm like, and and the direction in Phantom is clearly superior. Like it's it's a much better made film. Um, so yeah, Phantom would definitely outrank Captain Clegg for me. But I do. But they're both great. I mean, it's it's amazing to think that these were released as a double feature. Yeah, <laughs> and what a hell like, of a double feature too. Could you but... imagine seeing both of these movies for the first time back to back? Like, what a great night at the movies and and they give you two totally different things you know like i think yeah that would have been a, a really fun <laughs> night at the drive-in or something
1: <laughs> i can't imagine seeing them in a drive-in they don't seem like drive-in fair to me yeah but, but you know that that's where a lot of people
0: saw them <laughs> oh yeah yeah they were probably to... just making out they weren't watching the movie anyway very true, yeah. You had like the monster kids in the back
1: seat, you know, but that was, I don't know. Uh, let's see. Okay, so we knocked out Captain Clegg. We knocked out the Phantom of the Opera. Next up
0: is going to be The Kiss of the Vampire. Hey, I can talk about that. <laughs> I wrote a whole thing about that.
1: <laughs> and again, as you noted, Edward D'Souza will uh, show back up in yet another uh, Hammer film. Uh, it all says Jennifer Daniel, Noel Wilman, Barry Warren, Clifford Evans. And okay, so basically, no Hammer regulars in this.
0: No, Kiss is really interesting. Yeah, it's it's a bunch of different people, and it, it's a spin on the class. It's very much like a spin on what you normally get in a Dracula movie, and it was intended to be Dracula Three. That was the intention of it. In fact, it was sold to Universal as as the third Dracula film, even though it was called Kiss of the Vampire. They removed Dracula's name from it altogether because they decided that Dracula wasn't make or break because Brides of Dracula was really successful and it didn't have Dracula in it. And so Universal didn't even require that they call the next one Dracula because they said if Hammer makes a vampire movie, it will make money. That's fantastic. Okay, hold the fucking phone here, man. Don Sharp
1: directed The Kiss of the Vampire. Two oh, yeah. years later, he would be directing The Utterly batshit, incredibly well-made, very bizarre Curse of the Fly, the third Fly film. Uh, he would return to Hammer with uh, Rasputin, the Mad Monk. Yeah. Uh, he directed a couple of Fu Manchus. He directed Psychomania.
0: That's incredible. Don Sharp, and the direction in Kiss of the Vampire is great. Like it's very well directed. It's it's you can tell it's made by a very competent filmmaker. And then on top of that, it feels very distinctive amongst the other films because he's different than Terrence Fisher. He has different sensibilities. And so it's kind of cool to see a different, very talented director come in and sort of put his stamp on the kind of thing that we've seen before and carry it into a new place.
1: As opposed to doing kind of the, and again, I don't want to knock it too much, but I mean, his, you know, I just know from Rasputin and like his other work, you know, I can tell with kiss of the vampire that, you know, that's the first time he sort of dipped his toe in a hammer, but also unlike say, again, I don't want to bash him, but like, as opposed to Peter Graham Scott's work on captain Clegg, like, it's not merely like a, a a workman like job, you know? Yeah. It's, it's more (laughs) than that. Like there is an authorial voice there, you know?
0: Well, and the interesting thing, and I feel like I'm, (laughs) I feel like I'm doing early commentary here. Um, The interesting thing about Don Sharp was he had never done a horror film before kids with the vampire. And he, what he said was he had never actually really watched horror movies before he got that job. And so when he got the job, he was, he was hired just because he was a good director and he was like, he went to, um, you know, Tony Hines and some of the hammer people. And he was like, Hey, what should I watch horror wise to prepare myself for this? And they showed him like, um, you know, curse of Frankenstein and horror of Dracula. And he watched those movies and he, he kind of walked away and went, Oh, so horror isn't this cheap you know sort of lewd thing there's actually a lot of artistry there and you can play with psychosexual themes and things like that and they're like yeah he goes okay cool i think i got this so he he watched like a couple of the classic hammer movies which by the way i love that when he went to the creators of hammer they didn't do the sort of like thing where they're like oh let me show you like the classic horror movies like no we're gonna show you our shit (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that we really like, that we made, and uh, he kind of he kind of did his spin on the classic Hammer sort of vibe, and it's distinctive. It's different than what you normally get out of a great Hammer movie, but it also feels in line and kind of an evolution. Um, and in my eyes, the Kiss of the Vampire sets up sort of the occult thematics that you see in the late sixties Hammer films. Um, so what you end up getting out of like something like um The Devil Rides Out or um you know, some of those latter films very much comes to life in The Kiss of the Vampire.
1: Yeah, rock on, I could see that. Um, you know, what else? I mean we had uh which Dracula sequel do we have where it was essentially Satanists uh on display? You know, we also had uh da 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 Oh God, my memories. Well, I mean, we had satanic rights of Dracula. Too, we had satanic rights. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, to the devil, a daughter,
0: you know? Um, well, yeah, yeah. Devil of daughter. And that was one of the last movies they made, which funny enough, it actually was profitable <laughs> at a yeah. time when they weren't profitable at all. Like that movie made pretty good money. Well, it and- was
1: that, and then they did a, uh, a Hitchcock remake, which is what sank them. Um, I, uh, oh, um, Lady Vanishes. Um, oh yeah. So it's like this one, two punch, I think of like, Hey, we went back to the well and it, it did right by us. And then we killed ourselves,
0: you know? Yeah. Hammer. Well, hammer was becoming sort of irrelevant at, at, because the seventies were all about like grindhouse and how extreme can you be? you know and and really what sank them was were movies like Texas Chainsaw where it was just a totally different thing the hammer was not prepared to adapt to um and then you know american horror sort of altered the the course of things and hammer went by the wayside um but what's funny is hammer was such a huge influence to all of those filmmakers, <laughs> you know, like to all these people that started changing the face of horror. Like what they grew up with were Hammer and Universal movies on TV. So you know, it's it, it's it's that's one of the things I love about the horror genre, is that it's it's a story. And you can track its beginnings throughout that story. And I don't think other genres tell as linear of a story as horror does.
1: Yeah, You know, it's funny looking at their fallout. That was 1979 Hmm. that uh, The Lady Vanishes came out. 28 or 29 years later, their next production would come out, which was the... uh, Oh... It was a MySpace series called Beyond the Rave, which I still have not seen.
0: Um, they did. That Someday we'll they... cover it. Someday we'll cover it. James. We'll have to
1: find it first. Um, <laughs> but then, uh, then they did, uh, they did Let Me In. They did Let Me In. They did The Resident, Wakewood, which I actually think is damned good. Uh, I haven't the...
0: seen Wakewood. I've seen Let Me In and The Resident. Uh, Wakewood is
1: quite good. It's very folkcore. Very kind of Wicker Man in its own way. It does something very different to the Wicker Man, but uh, in its own way, it's, it's very much got that kind of vibe. Uh, then they did The Woman in Black, which was this massive success. And then they had like a one-two punch that kind of sank them again with uh, The Quiet Ones and The Woman in Black sequel, Angel of Death, which I actually thought was quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a five-year lull, and then they came back with The Lodge last year.
0: Um, I love the Lodge. I saw that I, at uh, a Fantastic Fest.
1: Re- nice, yeah. I, I, it was the last, wasn't the? Yeah, it was the last movie I caught in theaters this year. Uh, I saw The Invisible Man the weekend that it opened, and that was the same that. week that uh, yeah. that The Lodge hit theaters. And so that Wednesday, I went back to my local theater and caught it. And then the following week was the first week where I was like okay, I'm no longer comfortable going back to movie theaters, and then they shut down about two or three weeks after that. Um, the Lodge, I really liked. There's nothing about it to me that that screams hammer. You know, I can look at Let Me In and Wakewood and The Woman in Black films, and even The Quiet Ones, which a lot of people don't like, and see elements of that sort of gothic, like, supernatural horror and that sort of uh, interest in, you know, creating, like, just... Beautiful images and, you know, a, a tone, like an atmospheric tone that those movies seem to revel in more so than, you know, cheap shock value. The Lodge, to me, is a great movie, but to me it doesn't seem like of a piece with anything that I know to be Hammer. You know what I mean?
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's If you're judging it on that level, yeah, it doesn't feel very Hammerish. Um It's kind of gothic, a little bit. But it's... it's I, I just think it's, um, I don't know. I found it really disturbing, really effective. Um, the dread was built incredibly well, and I love the ending. I, I, some people have problems with the ending, the abruptness of it. Oh, the abruptness it I, I think it was, like, so appropriate, um, the abruptness. And, um, yeah, no, like, what is, the lodge what? was literally, like... Um, when I was doing my top 10 last year, I didn't include The Lodge because I only include movies that got like a, a formal release, even though I saw it in September of last year. Um, but like, had I included it, it would have been like top five. I loved, 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 loved The Lodge. Um, and maybe I'm a little bit jaded, be- not jaded, like lucky because I saw it in a theater with a like a completely packed audience. So my experience with the lodge was not like on Hulu. Like it was with a lot of people by myself and
1: myself and one other person. (laughs) Yeah. See,
0: I saw it. I saw it with like an entire, like, and the other thing that was really creepy about it was at fantastic fest, almost every screening I went to, I had like friends or like people I knew and we would like sit together The Lodge was the first movie of the festival and it came like halfway through the week where like it just so happened the way it all worked out. I didn't know anybody in the theater. So I didn't have like a friend, (laughs) which doesn't, it sounds kind of lame, but it's like not having a person with me, like made me feel more scared. (laughs) Like, so when the movie was upsetting or scary, it like affected me more because I didn't have like a partner uh with me. And so like I had a very good experience watching the film uh that was very frightening and disturbing and hit me at all the right moments. So talking walking about, out of it I was a huge fan. Talking about movies that will make you
1: cry too, the first ten minutes of that movie is just absolutely devastating.
0: I know. The and Little like, Girl, oh my God. Yeah, it it's really um it's tough and i i don't want to like go too deep into it in case people haven't seen it but the it's really I, there's there's a lot about them it's incredibly well made it's by the uh the guys who made Goodnight mommy and Which i like this I film did not way it. more than Goodnight mommy i yeah same I, here i thought good night mommy was well made but it didn't it didn't win me in the way I might've expected it to based on like the, I don't know. There's a lot of hype around goodnight good night, mommy. Um, and I don't know if there's as much hype around the lodge. I had heard some hype. I had heard it's like disturbing and, and whatnot, but like walking into it, I was a little more, I don't know what to expect. Um, and yeah, I was really floored by it. Um I can't recommend it enough. So if anyone listening hasn't seen it, it is on Hulu. Uh so you can watch it right now. It's on Blu-ray as well. I haven't bought the Blu ray yet, but I need to. Because I need to own that movie. Um but it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. We will we will get there at some point.
1: That will likely be the oh, last we I'm so we excited ever.
0: to cover the Lodge. So. I'm very <laughs> excited. I can tell you uh, stories about sitting by myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I will, one day, someday, I will make it to a Fantastic Fest. If Fantastic Fest...
0: Dean and you, we need to go together, sir. Uh, and, and once COVID's over and we can be around other people, maybe we could split a... Uh, we could find a... Uh, what's it called? Like one of those, like... You know, we could rent a a room together, like with two rooms or something. You know, we could share a a situation, a hotel or something. Yeah, yeah
1: that'd be cool.
0: Split the uh, split the costs.
1: We should rent like I mean, we should find a house to rent and then just invite. Well, other I have people a
0: buddy. Yeah, there's people who rent houses that we could get in on if you want to do that. Because um, like I have one friend who rents a house with like seven other people. Holy shit! But but they're all the funny thing is. They're all like writers, so they all do like press and stuff. So it's like, like, all right. After you know, when you get back from the movies, you all have to be quiet because we're all writing. <laughs> you can't oh, like God. party. And shit. Maybe maybe that would not be a great idea. Yeah. So because what I would do, um, and this sounds weird, but like I would wake up the next morning. I would stay up late, and I would just get up at like seven or eight a.m. and I would write till about eleven or twelve. So I would write in the morning instead of at night. A lot of people write after their screenings. I, I like to sleep first and get less sleep and just wake up early and write while everyone else is asleep. Because I found that that was – and then it's, like, bright and, you know, the sun is out and you have a glass of water, have your cereal, and it just – Well,
1: you've, you've meditated – Unconsciously, on what
0: you wanted to say the entire time, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, you, you kind of let the movie sit with you for a little bit and then write about the movie. There was, um, uh, this great have
1: you ever read, uh, Robert Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew? I haven't, I need to. Okay, it one, <laughs> you will read it, you will immediately want to just grab a camera and run out and make it buy that book for your daughter because there's Ooh, nothing yeah, more yeah. inspiring than right. reading that book. It's just, it's good idea. I'll
0: do that, yeah. Um,
1: but um, so there's this bit and it basically it's his diary during the, the, making of that. When he is on the festival circuit afterwards with his movie, there is this moment where he talks about how Quentin Tarantino gave him the best writing advice that he had ever gotten or received from anyone, but he didn't say what it was. And mm-hmm. then years and, years and years and years and years and years later, somebody interviewed him and they were like, look, man, like rebel without a crew, like Tarantino's writing advice to you. What was that? And he was like, Oh, And he was like, well, basically he told me, he was like, if you're in the middle of a big scene, and you know it's an important scene if you're writing or whatever, write half of it at night and go to bed. And then the next morning, wake up and then finish it. And he was like, and that was the best advice anybody had ever given me. And right. Huh. And it's yeah, it's just like one of those things where it's like you just sit with it and you you probably dream about it. You probably meditate on that scene. And then when you wake up the next morning, it's just like boom, it just comes out. I've tried it a handful of times and it does like it's it it yeah, I dig it.
0: Well, that's cool. So I would I imagine like the same
1: advice. would be the same would be true of reviews, I would think, you know.
0: Yeah, and you know, and far be it for me to compare what I'm doing to something like what Robert Rodriguez or Tarantino does. But, like, for me, it was helpful to watch the movies, have a good night, not worry about having to get home and write about them. Because I felt like a lot of people were worried about, like, oh, I got to get back and finish this or write this review. And then just wake up early. And maybe that first half hour is slow. Maybe your mind isn't all the way there yet. But once you wake up, once you settle in, you'll be good. And no one else will be awake <laughs> because everyone else stays up crazy late um, and, you know, sleeps till there, there, it's funny. There was always an ele- there was press screenings at 8 a.m. That, that a lot of people like that was tough to get to. It was tough to get to those. But if you went to those you would get to see whatever the big movie was, you know, like if you miss the secret screening, you could just go to the press screening the next day at 8 a.m. Um, then there was an 11 a.m. And the 11 a.m. was sort of like you would sign up for a movie, but a lot of people wouldn't go, <laughs> or at least a lot of people I knew. Um, and then the real fun started with the like 2 a.m. Movie, or 2 p.m. movie. That's when most people, sort of showed up. Um, so for me, if I woke up at like seven or eight, even if I went, I, I would, a lot of times I went to the 11 AM a couple times. I liked going to the 11 AM cause not a lot of people were there. Um, and you could, that was like your time to catch up on like maybe a retro screening or a movie that wasn't as big as some of the other movies, but you wanted to see it. um, But, like, if I did go to it, I'd still get two hours of writing. If I didn't go to it, I'd get, like, four to five hours of uninterrupted writing time. (laughs) That's crazy. And, like, going – and since I wasn't around, like, my kids, like, that was, like, a crazy gift that I maybe I appreciated more than most. Because at home, I never – I mean, even if I'm writing, I'm going to get interrupted every 45 minutes because I have kids. They're going to interrupt me. They're going to come into the room. They're going to say something. They're going to want me for something. There's no way to get uninterrupted writing time. If you have children, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. So like, for me, it was like this gift. And so like every day I was churning out all this content. And Nolan was like, what the hell? And I was like, it's because my kids aren't here. <laughs> <laughs> like I could get so much done. And he's like, why, you know, So about why I don't do that all the time. And I'm like, it's because I have kids, (laughs) you know, I can't like like tomorrow, like I'm off. You know, most people, oh, you have an off day, you can write a ton, but I have my kids. They're in virtual school. I'm going to have to feed them lunch. I'm going to have to help them with virtual school. I'm going to have to help them if there's any any connectivity issues, which you're talking about a six-year-old and a nine-year-old, like imagine being six years old and doing virtual school. You're going to need help from time to time. You know, there's no way I can just go upstairs for eight hours and not talk to them. You know, like you're going to get pulled. So the the nice thing about going to a festival like that is you, you get time to do what you need to do. And if you plan it correctly, you can get a lot more done than you even think you normally would. Paul? Yes
1: would you ever wear like a creepy phantom of the opera mask to 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 take a sort of firmer hand in like disciplining children at
0: any point um now that they've seen the movie i think not good <laughs> um but i think it would have a detrimental impact to their mental state
1: just show them that one angry <laughs> eye you
0: know that would if i walked into their room wearing that mask that that identical mask with like a blonde wig they would they would scream (laughs) like my daughters one thing we didn't talk about but my my daughters found that film very very scary which i think is really interesting because they don't feel that way about the two faces of dr jekyll they don't think that movie's scary but they think phantom of the opera is scary
1: see that i could i could see being younger and finding that one a bit more like unnerving yeah the
0: phantom really freaks them out yeah
1: and the the sort of i mean in the same way that we find michael myers creepy you know you have a a figure without a face i mean that's that's always going to be scary you know Well, Uh, because
0: when 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 you have a faceless mask like that it invites projection Right. Like you can then project onto that face what you think they're feeling or thinking. That's what's so scary about a plain mask, in my opinion, is that it it just it could be anything and therefore your imagination is in charge of what it means.
2: You, know, it's it's versus...
0: funny that you mentioned that. Um
1: I just did an interview for uh I write a series for Bloody Disgusting called Phantom Limbs, which is all about like uh, unmade horror sequels and remakes and whatnot uh, but i did i broke a little bit for the week after halloween i wanted to do one more halloween related thing after having done a month of unmade halloween sequels basically uh and i spoke with a comic writer uh, named Stephen hutchinson who had written a line of halloween comics and he got two issues into a uh kind of, not a prequel, not a sequel, kind of an in quill tale called The First Death of Laurie Strode. It's yeah, all I read about- that.
0: That was great.
1: Thanks. I um, But one of the things, you know, he and I were talking about Michael Myers, and we were, you know, people were telling him, well, Michael Myers wouldn't behave like that. He has the sequence in this uh, miniseries he did called Night Dance, which is one of the best uh, Halloween sequels ever made. It just happens to be a comic book. But he brings back the prankster Michael Myers, he brings back the malevolent sort of uh, the 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 boogeyman who can also like put on a, a sheet and glasses, you know, and appear mm-hmm. like a, a ghost, you know, to menace somebody rather than just straight up knifing them to death. You know, he's he he brought back the Michael Myers who would create Laurie Strode a personal haunted house, uh, you know, haunt, you know. Um, and there's a sequence where he attacks a young woman and he shoves an apple in her mouth and he paints her face like it, she's a clown with this. Uh, it's this very rough sort of thing with lipstick. You know, he paints like a clown smile on her face uh, before killing her. And he leaves her there in this you know, position, you know, painted up like a clown to obviously tear the, terrify the hell out of whoever, you know, comes upon her. And then there's like even a sequence where he outfits a, you know, it, it never does the Kevin from Home Alone thing. You never see it happen. But when somebody tries to race into a house to help someone, they reach to turn the doorknob and their hand is laid open by a razor that's been affixed to the doorknob. And it's like just little things like that. And of course, you know, people fed a diet of all the sequels over the course of the years are just like Michael Myers would never do that. And he was just like, Well, yes, he would. He did, he did it right there in that comic that was officially licensed, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. And he was like, do you, do you not remember the man in the sheet? Do you not remember the man who, who fixed all of the bodies just so, you know, with the, 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 the stone, you know, behind the headboard, um, the headstone behind the headboard rather. And so one of the things that he and I were talking about was the mask and why it's so creepy. But one of the things that amazed me was, you know, it's like you're talking about projection I was telling him, like, I, you know, it's hard to even imagine what Michael Myers is doing underneath that mask, what he looks like as he's doing all these terrible things. And I was like, but I imagined in my mind as he is, you know, marking up a victim like a clown before he kills her, you know, I was like, I imagine the slightest of smiles. And he was like, slightest of smiles. He was like, oh, I think he's just broadly grinning. As he does it, I was like, "Really, I can't picture that for the life of me. I cannot picture Michael Myers broadly grinning behind that mask, but that's the thing. none of us know you know who the hell knows what's happening behind that shape mask. you know,
0: yeah, and well, I think part of that is well, one, the first film is where he's the most sort of mischievous." And then that's kind of gone after that. So to your point, like every other movie teaches, you know, Halloween fans that that is not Michael Myers. The second piece of it is if he's broadly grinning, that suggests like much more of a personality than is typically ascribed to him because he's kind of a blank slate of evil. Right. Like that's kind of what Loomis tells us. Like there's nothing there
1: he's well, nothing
0: got... he's just empty he's he's a fucking you know conduit of evil, and that's all he is and and I'm not saying that Loomis maybe fully understands what's there, but I think that's probably why like because I would agree with you like like I could <laughs> see maybe a slight oh what no 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 sorry. Go. Well, I, I I could see like a slight grin, maybe permeating, like some sort of like fun, childlike, almost like Sam from Trick or Treat. Like like there's a sense of like this is a fun, childlike thing I'm doing. This is an impish thing I'm doing. But the overarching evil that possesses him. him because of course he's possessed by the Thorn curse. That's that's the actual answer. Uh, uh, <laughs> I love that sorry. movie, but I don't. Uh, know that uh, I, uh, I... The th- did you hear Eller Kane talking about it? I that was did. such a blast. It was. Uh, I disagree I, with him, but I I, but I totally disagree it. with him. But it was fun to hear somebody who wasn't um, like a huge fan of that movie watch it for the first time in years and then comment on it that I really respect. Um, it was it was very entertaining to hear him talk about, like, just his take. And it is not my take, but it was funny to hear it. Um, at any rate, uh, what I was getting at is a broad grin suggests more of a personality than I think he actually has. So I, I kind of disagree with that. But um, I think it's cool that somebody could have that reading and, you know... Who knows? Like you said, who knows what's under the mask? He
1: and I were talking about like, you know, the, the, I told him, I was like, yeah, it's funny. We actually brought up Dr. Who bringing a full circle here. Uh, and I mentioned like David Tennant being my favorite doctor, but I was like, he's the most well you know, wired out of all of them because the various doctors kind of do different things. Some of them are more warm. Some of them are more, you know, a bit cold, you know, some of them are a little more alien and less human. Some of them are a bit more wacky. Some are a bit more reserved and it's all about playing with those dials. Right. And with, you know, applying that to Carpenters, Michael Myers, you know, to me, there are three dials. It's, uh, (laughs) You know, it's mental patient, you know, uh, slasher, and prankster. Or no, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, Fuck, I've had too much to drink. I'm forgetting my own rules. (laughs) Mental patient slash maniac. So let's say maniac, boogeyman, prankster. And then, you know, every movie after that, they play with those dials in their own way. Um, Most of them dial down maniac and... uh, uh, prankster and they just give us boogeyman you know i feel like david gordon green's recent movie actually did the reverse he fought against all of those sequels for better and worse and even for all of the talk of boogeyman at the very beginning of that movie once he gets to haddonfield like once he barges into a bathroom and wrestles around and gets his mask back and all that to me like he's not the boogeyman he's definitely not a prankster He's just an escaped lunatic. That's it. That's all he is in that movie. He is not the boogeyman. He is not like this greater force of evil like, you know, Dr. Loomis saw in him. He's just a crazy fuck in a mask. Mm -hmm. And he's having a blast killing people. That's it. And that, to me, actually kind of made Michael Myers a tad scary in a way that he hadn't been in ages, you know. But with, with Hutchinson's version of the character... He dials up the prankster, like the malevolent, like, you know, boogeyman who wants to have fun. And so, to me, I I hear what you're saying. Like, it was a bridge too far for me, too, to imagine him with a broad grin on his face under that mask. Like, to me, I imagined, at most, I was like, you know, the slightest smile, maybe. Like, a, a corner of his mouth curling up, you know, at most. So, to hear him say that, like, he was broadly grinning, I was like, oh, wow, but... I mean, looking at all of the movies, you know, at the end of the first movie, we see him without the mask and he's grimacing. Like, he's pissed and in pain and he's gritting his damn teeth and his face is screwed up in this really angry kind of look before he pulls the mask back on and he gets shot. And then in a later movie, you know, we we see him cry when he is in front of Jamie. So, you know, maybe it's not outside the realm of possibility that he would just be getting a blast out of causing pain, but, but I don't want to see it, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to see. Yeah, I, I like,
0: I like it being understated. And I think the mask removal in the first film is so important. And I think it ultimately is like, he's a, he's a dude. He's a guy. He's just a, he's a regular, no, like nothing person. <laughs> he, there's nothing special about him under that mask. That's why it's so important that the mask is removed in the first film. Um, is that there is nothing remarkable about this person, and yet this is the one causing so much havoc, and this is the one that bullets don't kill, you know, um, and 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 it shows that, and again, most of these seventies horror films, to me, what what the set what seventies horror, the thesis statement of seventies horror is this anybody is capable of anything (laughs) that that's what i took away from 70s horror (laughs) and i think that that is alive and well in the mask removal and halloween um at the same time if you look at it so if you look at it as a single film even in that context loomis shoots him six times and he isn't there at the end So he is, that's sort of the the punchline. Like, yeah, this guy is the boogeyman. And then you literally have the line. He was, he was the boogeyman. Right. So to me, it's, it's representative of the fact that like, he isn't a mere mortal man anymore who enjoys things or doesn't enjoy things. He's a conduit of evil. Um, and do you I think could okay, so see, oh, if, we'll go ahead. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, I what I was saying is I could see him like eking a bit of enjoyment out of what he's doing, if only incidentally, like because he's that the human side of him is there somewhere, um, and maybe like tangentially it gets pleasure out of the terror that it's inflicting. Um, and and I think some of that comes into the sprightly spirit of Halloween. So like you said, if he starts doing things like dressing up, like in the first one, he dresses up like a ghost and wears the glasses. Like that's a fucked up, goofy thing he kind of he kinda does. So if he was going to do more things like that in subsequent sequels, which he really never does, I can't think of another thing that's even remotely close to that.
1: We well, he does a lot of stalking, too, whereas in the sequels, it's just, you know, if he wants somebody dead, he fucking kills them, and that's it.
0: Right, right. Like, the first movie's the only one that has a bit of fun. Like, he always sort of, I don't know, like, and even the whole thing about, like, putting all the corpses in one place. Like, that isn't really a thing in the later movies, um, it's a thing in slasher films, <laughs> you know, it's sort of a trope, but it's not something that Myers often does, you know, he's, he's sort of a sh- like people always call him a shark. He's just killing, he's killing what's in front of him. Now, granted, the later films sort of point him towards Laurie Strode and then, J- you know, Jamie Lloyd, Um. And I really enjoy the Jamie Lloyd stuff, you know, and I wish they had pursued it to a more logical conclusion. Um, I think that would have been fantastic, but I don't know that I see Myers getting particularly energized over anything. I don't think that's in character with what's sort of set up, but I guess if you look at the first film, like, separated out from the rest of the franchise and made a different sequel then you could argue that it's a different thing and maybe he's just possessed by the spirit of the holiday or maybe he's just fucking crazy (laughs) you know maybe he's just a madman
1: you mentioning the whole thing with how important it is that we see his face you know that we we see his face we see that he's just a man and then a, a minute later no he is the boogeyman who can get shot six times fall out a window and then get up and walk away you know i i i'd never considered this before but i literally wonder if loomis didn't successfully kill michael myers the man when he fired six bullets into him in that room and what gets up and walks away is the shape like we see michael myers he kills michael myers and then the shape gets up and walks away whatever that is right.
0: Whatever had possessed him. Yeah, I I think that's a part of it, too. I've thought about that before. I mean, I I think that that moment is really important to the franchise because that's the moment where it's pretty much laid out for you that he really is the boogeyman. And I kind of wish the boogeyman language had had, had survived the sequels cuz I don't do they ever call him the boogeyman again? Uh yeah, Jamie does and uh Oh, yeah, yeah, but, Uncle Boogeyman. I I I kind of think that that's like the selling point of that character. Like that's what makes him interesting is that he's this recurring nightmare that you can't really wake from or stop. Um you know, most other <laughs> villains can be halted in some way you know um jason generally i mean granted by movie 6 he's a zombie but before that he's kind of just a guy like the suggestion of the first 4 jason films after rewatching all fucking 12 of them which that was a trip by the way i don't know if i told you i watched i rewatched the entire jason franchise with that box set
1: I did the same thing. It's been so much fun Ooh. to see people online revisit all of them.
0: You know, it it was interesting. I'll tell you this: I emerged from that watching the first four movies. I've never thought higher of them. I same here. Same I, I here. loved the first four films. I was like, "Holy shit!" These first four movies tell kind of like a complete story in a way. Um, everything after that is lesser in my eyes which is crazy because up until yes pretty much yeah for me um i always thought jason lives was the best one always forever i always thought part six was easily the best and while i think it's the most fun i do not think it's the best anymore i don't so much in fact that i might even and i haven't re-ranked them yet because i'm really grappling with this I think all four of the originals are better. I think the one through four is pretty much as good as that series gets and everything else is below it. And then it would go like the fun ones and then the outliers. And I know that a lot of people have love for Jason goes to hell. And I'm really grappling with this. I like Jason goes to hell, but I feel like it's kind of a crappy, boring movie. Like, (laughs) I mean, not just, I mean, it's got great effects. It's got great visual effects, but it's boring. It's very boring. I mean, the beginning is amazing. Like the opening with like catching Jason is great, but it's kind of a slog and it's not a great looking movie. Like it's kind of like, it doesn't look particularly well directed. It's not, it's not very lush to look at. And as much as I like Jason X, it looks cheap as fuck to me. Like really? that movie looked like a direct to video movie. Like, I don't know. It just, it didn't look cinematic. Like it's fun and it's got some great kills and it's a blast to watch, but it's not a great movie. I, I don't know.
1: Original, which being 2002, would have
0: been it looks, really it looks like shitty. And movie. like that, that, but, but that's the a problem. You know, I, I can't overlook that. Like it looks shitty. Like, when I, yeah, I put on Jason X, I was like, oh, this looks bad. Like, it, it doesn't look good. And a movie needs to kind of look good to be good. I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed it. It's a it's a lot of fun. Like, I had a good time watching it. But if I'm ranking them, how could I possibly rank that above any of the first four, which are all good horror movies? You know what I mean?
1: I had always held up four six and x as being my favorites and Fre- freddy versus jason too uh freddy versus uh,
0: jason is fun but it's not a jason movie it's a freddy movie agree but I mean, and, and so like how could i rank that I, I don't know i guess to be honest with you if i made a jason ranking i would not put freddy jason in there because it, it's uh, not a it's not a Jason. It isn't a Jason movie. You can't, well, you know what's weird. The-
1: it's always included in the Jason sets and not the Freddy sets, you know, which is, kind which of is, strange.
0: well, yeah, that's, it's because of rights, but like, I love Freddy versus Jason, even though it's got a really offensive thing that happens in it. Like it's, it's very, it's a very fun movie, but again, I'm not ranking fun. I'm ranking good. I don't know. I think there's a difference between a well-made horror film and a really fun movie. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not making any sense, but this watch completely changed my entire perspective of this franchise, like literally shifted. I've never rewatched a series of movies and had a bigger shift in my rankings.
1: Same here. I never cared much for one through three. Um, Watching them again. I I actually really loved one and two, two even more, uh, which was a first. For me, I never really cared for those movies at all. And this time around, I dug the hell out of the first two, and I thought they looked gorgeous on that Blu-ray. Yeah, uh, but yeah. three, I think, is still not good. Uh, it's not. Did, it,
0: did, it's. Can I ask you a question? Can I interrupt fine, really quick? But can I, can I just interrupt? Yes. Did you watch the three D version? Okay. I shit you not. I've always thought three was fine at best i was like three is good it's fine it's not my favorite i like it it's okay i have a 3d tv my brother and i watched friday the 13th 3 in 3d easily my favorite watch of the entire franchise easily not even a question
1: yeah, see that um
0: the 3d was so astoundingly good I mean, I could not believe how good. The th- it looked better than any modern-day 3D I've seen. The only 3D movie that I liked more than this watch was House of Wax 3D, the original. Um, the Vincent Price film. This movie, like, coming out of this, I'm like, my favorite Friday the 13th movie is Friday the 13th 3D, in that view. It's a totally different experience than the original movie. And you can tell... It was completely intended to be viewed in 3D. So it's like a totally different experience. It sucks because not everyone can experience it. But man, I was floored by how great it was.
1: Okay, Paul, we have two minutes and two seconds until we reach three hours. Oh, Uh, shit. So we're gonna rock it through this, and we're gonna wrap it up. I'm just gonna say real quick: didn't care for three, still love four even more. Five, I think is a terrible movie, which I always did. I absolutely adore six, and I always will. Seven, I thought was uh, not that great, but I absolutely love the climax. And uh, Kane Hunter's Jason is awesome. Jason goes to hell, I think is fun but kind of dumb. Uh, 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 the the fucking oh no, that one came later. The ship one, uh, fuck. Jason takes Manhattan. I hated yeah, that. It,
0: it's it's some of it's I fun. I hated it. But, I hate it.
1: But most of it is blah. Uh, <laughs> Jason Goes to Hell, I think is dumb fun. Jason X, I still think is a blast. I understand what you're saying about the visuals, but it's still charming as hell and funny it as is, can be to fun.
0: me. Yeah, it, it's fun. Yeah, it's high up there, but it's below one through four.
1: Freddy versus Jason, I still think is an absolute blast, and I'll go ahead and say it watching it this time around. Uh, I always liked the movie, but watching it again on the heels of the entire franchise, I think the remake, and it is a remake, I, I've had this argument with people online, it's a fucking yeah. remake, uh, no, they're, I, I, the writers themselves call it a sequel, and I just don't – We there no, was an argue- it's not,
0: no, it's not – no, it's,
1: it's I, not I it I is. Dude, I get it. I got into an argument with them. Per- I never do this, but I was getting to, into an argument with them online with fucking writers, and I was like – Really? You know, oh, yeah, I could you not. I was like – and finally, Scott Foy, Foy Wonder, like direct messaged me. He was like, you realize yeah. they're probably just trolling you, right? And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to throw my hands up and say to hell with it. But anyway – Um, yeah, so overall, I, I enjoyed the Friday the 13th franchise, watching that box set beginning to end more than I've ever appreciated that series again, but I will say wrapping this up, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, two malevolent figures, uh, who, who, who wear masks to hide who they are underneath. Do they not descend from the Phantom of the Opera? Is there is, is there something that predates even to him as far as masked maniacs go in horror stories?
0: I think that's a fair assessment, personally. I think that's... That when my daughter mentioned that about Myers, I was like, oh, yeah, you might have a pretty good point there.
1: Yeah. All right. And so, yeah, we, we, we doff our hat to uh, The Phantom of the Opera for uh, not only just inspiring so many great movies like the one we talked about for five minutes tonight, but also... For
0: inspiring. (laughs) That's super accurate.
1: (laughs) Uh, For inspiring uh, all of the slashers that we still love today. So, uh, Paul. We yep. are at three hours and 35 minutes. It does feel like this time has flown by. I'm amazed that we got here so quickly. Uh, do, yeah. I, you know, again, I, I'm doing that weird thing with the end of the podcast where I feel like I want to ask you, so where can folks find you at online? What do you have coming up, Paul? When's your next movie coming out? Are you acting in anything recently? You know, <laughs> it, it's bizarre, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to you. Uh, what, what do you have to say before we sign
0: off? Um, I think I've said enough. Uh, <laughs> You can, uh, yeah, I mean, you can find me at uh, Paula's Great 2000 on Twitter. Uh, That's where I ramble on and on about movies. And, uh, you know, column-wise, I've got my Written in Blood column over at Scriptophobics. Um, I think my next one coming out is on Ginger Snaps. So that should be coming soon. And then my uh, uh, Hammer column over at Bloody Disgusting uh, which uh, I think my most recent one is probably Kiss of the Vampire, which will be next week. So that will be a perfect tie-in uh, to the next episode we're going to do. Excellent. Perfect timing.
1: All right. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Jinx1981. That's J-I-N-X-1981. Uh, if you so choose, you can find me on Instagram at jinx Seven four zero nine four one. It's a lot of numbers. I know. I'm sorry. J I N X seven four uh, zero nine four one. Paul, are you on Instagram or not? What's what's going on there? What's the deal? What's up? I,
0: I am not on Instagram, but people keep telling me I should go onto it, but I'm not currently.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just it's kind of like you know I've tried it and I'm just like oh this is this is this is Twitter just without retweets or anything that I love about Twitter. So okay, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I'm not sold on it yet but uh anyway folks we will uh we're gonna go ahead and wrap up now and we will see you again uh with the next episode the kiss of the vampire until then have a great weekend